Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the Wall Street Bets of Extreme Metal Podcasts. I am the death metal guy, aka YOLOing my life savings into necrophagist futures. And I am the black metal guy, aka anime cat girl stock. Bye, bye, bye! <laughs> it's a bull market for those little cat girls. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Dude. Uh... This is absolutely the most enthralling and exciting thing I've ever seen. Uh, I, I, I love the GME situation so much. I love the idea that GameStop may become, like, the most powerful and wealthiest corporation on the planet. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. I completely disavow this financial terrorism. How, how, could, how could a group... How, how, you know, how... D- I mean, the idea that a group of private individuals would get together on the internet to form the equivalent of an investment banking firm is disgusting. These men needed to go to business schools. They needed to do degrees in fucking, uh, you know, uh, whatever horse shit. And um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's obvious that you know, because of the nature of the stock in question, this clearly has ties to the terrorist group known as Gamergate. And as a result, we will not, we will not be promoting their actions on the show. Nor will I tell you that yeah. if you do happen to own GME stock, to hold it and force the gamma squeeze as far as it can go with the ultimate hope of the dismantling of the economic system of the United States of America. I would never say that. At Terminus, we are strong believers in the economic system of the United States of America, which uh, guarantees us 80 bucks a month on Patreon. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome back. We got, we got a weird episode today. We got some pretty uh, funky kind of albums we're doing, I think. Yeah. All right. So um, I guess we should do the... We'll do a quick news thing uh, and then just go into the album. So, we yeah, so we've got... Uh, so there were a couple relative surprise album releases. Uh, first of all, uh, you, if you don't know already, The Ruins of Beveras seems to have dropped online a week before the physical re- release. Uh, I haven't checked it out yet, but I, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's going to be good. It's got a, it's got a, a you know, deer, deer skull-headed shaman priestess standing next to a Greek temple in sort of green shadowy background. So yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be awesome. And it's it's um, ruins of Everest, so by default it'll be one of the best albums of the year. Probably exactly. It's just exactly. It's just gonna be great, right? So um, yeah, a brand you can trust. Um, cornerstones of the American financial system. Um, <laughs> uh, um other than that, we've got uh. Two, two bands that I think we I've mentioned on the show, I uh, mentioned one of them quite a lot, and uh, that we are looking forward to covering. Uh, the new full-length by Elegiac dropped the other day, um, and that record is called Father of Death. We've mentioned Elegiac, I've mentioned Elegiac as sort of a paradigm for the, uh, the Vinlandic version of the American you know, solar outlaw black metal sound, right? This mm-hmm. kind of uh, um, do it where there's a kind of notable touch of, you know, there's a lot of there's some fin black, there's a lot of epic bathory, but there's also these constant touches of kind of like uh, jangly hammer on guitar stuff that evokes bluegrass and things like that. Um, and 
this guy's got some really good riffs on this new one. I just listened to the beginning. But uh, um, we've also got a uh, new one by the lads in Sylvan Throne. I saw them live last year, and they were really, really good. They played two shows back to back because they played a Sylvan. They played as their war metal band, Goat Hex, and then a Sylvan Throne, in, one immediately before the other. Uh, <laughs> and um, Sylvan Throne is sort of uh, like very majestic French and Finnish influenced black metal, but it doesn't really sound like the Finno-French formula per se. Maybe sounds more French. They, uh, I, I talked with them a bit, and they uh, said it was, you know, they meant it to be sort of like a Pest Noir kind of thing. Um, hmm. But uh, but it's very, it's got big dramatic moments, um, kind of like shout-along choruses almost, and the guitars have a little more sort of like, there's some major key stuff, and there's just these like very big kind of jangly resonant chords, which are uh, cool. So, um, looking forward to the new Sylvan Throne too, uh, and we'll review next week. Well, we'll review both of those for my picks next week. All right. All right. Um, so, uh, well, you know, before we go further, hey, what's the best way to keep in touch with us, Black Metal Guy? What's the best way to keep in touch with us, Black Metal Guy? Oh, that's right. They can um, subscribe to our Patreon. Or, if they don't want to support uh, Big Tech, subscribe to us on Subscribestar. Um, and, uh, and additionally, you, know, you can follow us on social of- media. <laughs> oh, that's oh, that's right. Sorry, I've just been thinking about money the whole time. Man, um, I've just been I, I've been uh, fucking carrying the show on my back for so long, and you don't know the spiel yet. All right, if you want to follow me, the death. Oh no, when, when you when you do that part, my eyes when you do that part, my eyes glaze over, and I just think of the next brilliant thing I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> do you think I like it anymore? Okay, so. So, yes, if you would like to support us financially, uh, we are actually planning to cash out of our Patreon for the first time uh, next month, uh, which we're immediately going to spend on liquor and band t-shirts, which I believe should be write-offs as business expenses for tax purposes. Uh, Three bucks and up gets... Yeah, three bucks and up gets you access to our bonus episodes, Terminus Prime. Should have a new one of those coming pretty soon. And uh, five bucks and up gets you access to the Terminus Black Circle, where we trade investment tips and argue as to whether absurd counts as sick or lame. And additionally, if you don't want to pay any money, but you still want to get a little bit closer to us, you can follow me on Facebook at Terminus Podcast. Or you can follow the Black Metal Guy on Instagram at Terminus Extreme Metal. There you go. Oh, thanks, buddy. Coming through. All right. (laughs) Just clutching it out, you know. So, so for today's show, uh, we lead off with a couple death metal records. What is, uh, what's your pick, bro? All right. So, first one, uh, I mentioned the label this is on last week, Memento Mori from Italy, because they are releasing the uh, CD version of Numa Hagion's Void Gazer, one of our favorite records of last year. But uh, 
after I had discovered that, I decided to check out the label, and I found these guys, uh, Altered Dead, with Return to Life. A uh, recent release, sort of in the old-school death metal vein, but executed very differently from the majority of it. And uh, gotta say, I was really pleased to find that one. I think it's a great rejoinder to that new Mahagion record, and uh, there's a lot of interesting parallels to discuss. Cool. Yeah. Um, so alongside that, um, I thought we would check out the new one by Stargazer from Australia. Uh, this is out. Uh, this is Psychic Secretions, and it's out now on Nuclear War now. Uh, Stargazer is a band I was sort of familiar with back in the day. They uh, they were doing kind of an extremely melodic kind of. Um, spacey glorious take on black death metal long before that sort of became fashionable and um i think it kind of bled into inquisition in particular but uh but i haven't been keeping track of them in years so interested to see what's happened with that yep and uh on the back half of the show well it's finally time boys and girls the style of music that none of you listen to this show for yes it is the return of brutal death metal here on terminus and this time we have the debut full length by the charmingly named Anal Stab Wound with its album, The Visceral <laughs> Sovereign. Uh, this is out on Inherited Suffering. You know, some Records. of those band names, some of those band names are intrinsically, abs- some of those band names are like absurd, right? Meant to be like that one is just vicious. Yeah, that's really unpleasant you know, like, to imagine. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, there have been way way more heinous and graphic acts described in that, but somehow that sounds more painful and worse and more sincere. <laughs> Absolutely. But as I was saying, this is out on uh, Inherited Suffering Records. Uh, pretty good label. Again, mostly specializing in brutal death, deathcore, uh, death grind stuff. Uh, usually has cool artwork featuring big monsters. Uh, one of the big ones that they did, I think, a couple years back was the uh, record by Rendered Helpless, uh, Suffer Seraphim, which is a great one if you're a Brutal Death fan to check out. But uh, very interested because uh, the guy behind this project I've been following for a while, and uh, there's some interesting character notes about this dude that we'll definitely be getting into. All right, cool. Um, and finally... Uh, I can't believe I missed this in November or December, although I sort of can believe I missed it uh, because I think this release was extremely underground. But uh, the third record by Tau Cross, Messengers of Deception, uh, finally actually came out, played by a different lineup on the, I assume, uh, self-made label of Rob Miller, uh, Heretical Music. Um, and so we are going to Tau Cross is a con- sort of a continuation of Amoebics, but uh, much sort of more focused on beefy, rocky, anthemic stuff. And that's been played up here. All right. So first on the docket, Altered Dead with Returned to Life. So uh, like I was saying up front, uh, Memento Mori is not a label that I was familiar with originally, but uh, once I saw Numa Hagen was releasing the CD version of Void Gazer, uh, I checked him out, and it seems like a label that specializes in kind of weird takes on old-school death metal. 
Uh, one record they released alongside this one is the second full-length by Dipagus called Bushmeat that's been getting a fair amount of attention now. Uh, I gave it a listen. It's pretty good uh, Impetigo-style stuff, but it just has a few too many kind of spooky horror movie riffs for me. But uh, then I found this Altered Dead record, and uh, this is a two-piece band out of British Columbia, Canada. And I gotta say, I was really impressed by this album. It is very traditional in terms of kind of the riff craft and how the songs are structured, but the the presentation of this music is very modern, very extreme, and very weird in a way that really spoke to me. Yeah, I really, really liked this. Um, definitely hits in a way that's kind of similar to the New Mahagion, I suppose the difference being that New Mahagion has more of a punchy, mid-centered sound relative to this. Uh, and New Mahagion has much deliberately more simple songs, right? New Mahagion is a kind of elemental three or four riff things, get in or get out, get, a, get in and get out, and more mm -hmm. of the kind of a accidental hardcore sound yeah. um, or accidental beatdown sound. This doesn't have, this certainly is extremely punky, but there's not like that kind of modern 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 ish sort of ny8 nydm beatdown kind of thing going on it's a um it's got some fancier riffs too although not by much um but yeah, i think the thing you have an idea of what really sets this apart though right so <clears throat> uh, yeah so the big thing that uh, other people have mentioned. Uh, I actually stumbled across a review of this on uh, Hate Meditations, where he was talking about mm -hmm. the big thing I that read makes this. Yeah, yeah, the thing that makes this really distinct. Uh, and I, I had listened to the album before reading it, but I came to the same conclusion, which is the thing that makes it so distinct is the kind of timbre of this music. Because the big thing is, I'm pretty sure these guys are using an eight-string guitar. Um which doesn't sound like it should make that much of a difference, but merely the idea of tuning down these old-school death metal riffs so far has this really uh, outsized impact on the music itself. Uh, it takes some of these relatively unadorned sort of primitive death thrash riffs and makes them completely hideous and bizarre. Um, there's obviously a, a great sense of uh, weird harmonic dimension in this stuff. I think the biggest influences are going to be uh, Morbid Angel and Incantation, which, you know, at this point is almost a cliche for sort of odd old school death metal stuff. But I think that it's also tied together with, like, as you said, a lot of old school kind of punky proto death stuff. You can definitely hear, you know, the Death Strike and Necrovore, which I think you bring up later. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But also, it's just, uh, it, it's also got this very strange production quality of being very low and bassy, but sort of gnarly and dry. Uh, parts of this really remind yeah, me Yeah, I a like lot. that a lot. Yeah, it's very cool production. Mm -hmm. And uh, parts of this actually remind me a lot of the Forgotten Tomb record we covered last year, the Chilean Forgotten Tomb, who do... Uh, a very strange sort of crypto proto death metal in sort of a similar vein. I, I was thinking that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, um, 
Uh, also, probably, uh, <laughs> it feels like uh, I, I might be familiar with uh, another band that existed that was using an eight-string guitar and did really bizarre versions of Morbid Angel and Incantation and had a relationship with Numa Hagion, but I'm not sure who it was, so whatever. <laughs> I'm a little biased, oh, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, so, uh, real quick, uh, a sample, just so people know what this sounds like. And uh, these songs tend to be pretty short. And here's a real short one. This is the second track on the album, the title track, Return to Life. It's two minutes long. Let's just run it through to see what happens. It's just so fucking gnarly and malignant. You know, you, you can't help but just... If you love early death metal, not necessarily for its, you know, kind of ornate maximalism, but you like it because it's heavy and angry, this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I really, really liked this. I put this on and basically instantly liked it. Um, man, just, I mean, a, a thing I just realized is, you know, my, my sample kept playing onto the next track there on mm -hmm. the final pathogen and the beginning of final pathogen could just be a slightly delay, could just be a breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a song. I mean, this, this whole but, record but, could be one song pretty much. Yeah. The standout for me on that was that six, eight blast riff near the end where it's just, um, you know, he really know the thing that sets apart these sort of like new, actually good OSDM bands is they're really good at exploiting the specifically death metal qualities of death metal. Mm -hmm. So just the idea that you can take that sort of like 
basically one note on every eighth note, six, eight kind of thing, and just do this, you know, I mean, it this riff that's kind of shaped like one of those tentacles on the album covers, right? You know, just this kind of like wandering, kind of uh, convulsing... <laughs> like uh that's really cool yeah no it is it's um i i the big thing that stuck out for me of course are those like completely demented like broken chord riffs at the beginning the those just like horrible slide riffs which is kind of like a new Mahagion thing um that he would do mm-hmm. like over a fast thrash beat or something usually mm-hmm. um it's uh, i really like this is a band that clearly has a very distinct idea behind it you know it's it's not merely pick your favorite three old school death metal bands and do versions of those songs this congeals together really well as a band with its own sense of style and its own things to say you would and it has that feeling of like you know uh necessity both on a song level where it's like every riff has that quality i like where it just is the riff that has to come next but also in terms of just the band it's like why doesn't it all sound like this (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I think it, it it does, to a large degree, sound like that. Okay, I, I, I get what you mean, but, like, this is so much better than so many other OSDM bands, right? Oh, oh, I, mean, I, I, thought, I thought a... you meant, I thought you meant within the album. I didn't know you meant, oh, like... Oh, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. No, I, I, I love the whole album, yeah. No, my thought is, like, you know, it might be that 10-year lag rule we were talking about, where it's like there's been about 10 years of old OSDM incantation worship. Mm-hmm. We actually we really are on about 10 years of that since the beginning of the Cavern Core thing, right? Uh, yeah, Since yeah. it really took off. So, 10-year lag rule. Finally, we're getting um, bands that actually get incantation and morbid angel and all that and like the things about those bands that made them good yeah that actually made them special rather than just a a certain Mm -hmm. aesthetic but i i definitely again i want to stress like drawing attention to that guitar tone you know because i've Mm -hmm. i've played a fair amount of stuff on eight string and you know seven string you know tunes to b standard typically uh, so that's still kind of within the realm of regular death metal tuning, but once you get down to eight string, yeah. you're in F sharp. You're almost into a regular four string bass tuning, and the effect that that has of playing in a tuning like that through a regular guitar amp. Guitar amps aren't really designed for those frequency ranges, so what you get is not the sound of a very low guitar, but kind of an instrument unto itself. And uh, it creates this very strange effect where it's like your ear almost doesn't know what to latch onto just because the, the style of it is so radically different. Yeah. It also, since we're, uh, you know, since we're sourcing uh, or we did a nod to hate meditations earlier, I think he did say something in the review that, is, you know, a thing I think that we've pointed out about various bands at various points, but I think he puts it very well. It's, uh, 
something about the eight string thing being uh, da, 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 da. uh the guitar tone itself is so bespoke that it places very real dictates on how the music actually takes shape mm-hmm right? yeah I think that's and, very you know that's, that's very that's, astute observation yeah it's something about how the the content is determining the form right the material of the riff is not incidental to the way the riffs are constructed, given that you're dealing... We've definitely seen this with Numehagion. We've seen it with a lot of beat-down bands, given the way the strings are so... I guess in those bands, the strings are flabbier than they are on this, because this is an eight-string, right? But like, Yeah, yeah. But, but still, you know, there's things about the materiality of the string and the tone that determine your parameters for actually writing and shaping the riffs, and it means you end up creating the, it means that the the structures end up being somewhat different i think that is true and i think it's a thing i didn't really get about guitar till much later till like i started playing myself mm -hmm. like we're playing more playing electric more and more serious or seriously where it's like where it's like oh this riff really does sound different when i turn it up even just uh, yeah. something as simple as that Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, like, you were talking about the slackness of the strings where, you know, I've I've mm -hmm. done, like, super down-tuned stuff on a six-string and it changes your picking patterns. You do not physically play the same way when everything's so kind of soft and oily on the guitar. It's like, you have Dude. to slow down the tremolo picking. You have to adjust your fingering to make sure you're not getting just, like, fret noise on everything. It's, it's interesting. Once I... Once I took a six string and tuned the E string down to like like C or B or something and just made like an octave something gnarly and basically made I might have seen if I could drop it in full octave below the A and um <laughs> and, and then just use that as the drone string and play these like horrible kind of Vulcanaz Graveland riffs over it. It was really fun. That sounds pretty tight. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, you got a sample. What have you got? Uh, okay, so, uh, so we've got Prosodemic Realms. Um, this is uh, just... I liked this record from the get-go, but this is the first thing where I was like, oh, this is really sick. So uh, the focus here is on the mid-tempo 6-8 riff, which... Uh, is just incredibly good. Dude, on that 6-8 riff, 
when he finally hits mm-hmm. that like open F sharp in it that it's it's such like a it, it, it sounds like a, a demon teleporting in in doom or some shit like that you know what I mean it doesn't sound like a note anymore you mean when he's when they switch out of the six eight to the to the part at the end or or no no it's during the six eight riff towards the tail end of it you know he's doing a little phrase and then kind of dipping down and finally for the first time in the riff hitting the open F sharp or whatever the bottom oh, so of the like string is so it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got this, like, he's hitting that note just, like, once or twice in the sequence, which is a technique that I got into where it's like, you know, you're used to just, like, sitting on, you know, your lowest pitch string in death metal. But when you're playing on an eight string, it changes a little bit. You want to focus a little bit more on the A string, so to speak, the second string. And so you've got room to move up and down into those registers. So he clearly knows, like, how to make the most of this kind of unique instrument. Oh, that's cool. So you're using the extreme register as a punctuation. Uh, yeah, rather than just having everything sit in that bottom register. Yeah, if you had everything sit there, you could use it to make some, like, you know, like, ultra-chthonic winter-type music, but it'd be very different from this. Um, Definitely. Uh, y- y- yeah, The I mean, this. the other cool thing about that riff is just, like, it does the thing that I really like about stenchcore, which is that the tempo slows down relative to what's around it, and it opens up more rhythmic space, and the response isn't to just, like, let stuff hang in there or just sort of go clunking through it, but to aggressively fill all of the space in. So, yeah, you know, like... Yeah, it's like... We're on the And six- I think... Oh, no, go ahead. Well, yeah, no, I mean, so it's to the part that sort of breaks it up relative to their D D beats and the blast. And, you know, it's just, it's frantic, you know, the pick speed. And uh, you can hear also the super low tone affecting uh, the inflections. Like, you know, we've, I talk all the time and you talk too about how we love those kinds of, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, pumping the shotgun riffs, the sort of like yeah. slides up, you know, the tritone slide or whatever, right? When he does that, you almost can't even hear the slide. It's just more like a, an upward fart, you know? It's just kind of <laughs> like, you know, bo- like, it's like, it's like a dubstep kick drum or something. Yeah. It's, it's almost a wub. It's almost dubstep yeah, bass. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think you're getting at something, which is something we've talked about on the show, which is how uh, we, you know, talking about how black metal has become the hegemonic form of extreme metal, and kind of going back to when you were talking about not letting this empty space hang, but filling it in in this maximalist way. It's like, oh, I have space to do insane rhythmic and melodic things here, which is. It, it, it sounds, you know, trite or, like, overly simplistic, but that really is a very distinct difference because now even death metal bands that have absorbed so much black metal technique are so content to just hang on a chord in those spaces. 
These guys will not do that. They never hang on a chord apart from a very slow kind of doom section. Here, it's like, fill it in, do something interesting with that time. That's a very good point. Yeah. Okay, then I'll just do another sample yeah. then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, here's here's one of the the times on the record where it does seem to be a bit of a collage of influences, but it's executed so well and with enough of the band's personal flair that uh, I think it does kind of rise above the sort of pastiche idea. So this is off one of the later tracks called Rotting Outwards, which is a, a great song title. Um, Agreed. And, yeah. and I think it's also, it might have to do with the also fucking fantastic album art of just the Earth with horrible tentacles splitting out of it in space and holding some sort of like golden glowing orb. I I, I don't know, but it's dope. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, let's just, uh, another case. Let's just listen to this whole track. Awesome record. I, I, God, I really have so much affection for this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that 
struck me about this is that the D beats are really, really good. Um, this is a yeah, guy who yeah. actually care. He act. They they actually care about the D beat parts. Um, and there were maybe three to four different variants on the D beat riffing in that track. Uh, mm-hmm. And at the end, it was very specifically death metal sounding, taking advantage of the fact that you're a nimbler guitarist than the. Uh, than, you know, most punk guitarists and sort of, you know, building a complex structure into that riff. Um, mm-hmm. And at the beginning, you know, a lot of them are very simple, kind of more like grind riffs, a little in the way that the new Mahagion D-beats are, mm-hmm. but um, very functional. And uh, they have these... Uh, the, the second D-beat variant at the beginning had this really cool structure. It was like... A, there, there was like a second level to the riff where the chords sort of rose and did interesting things that you didn't expect. Yeah. Uh, and it's always better than the Stockholm stuff precisely because it's simpler. There are these sort yeah. of like, that allows, it allows you to focus on the melodic idea. You create these clearly defined, powerful forms that are very distinct and memorable. And it makes them more functional, but also catchier. Uh, whereas the sort of like very complex, rapid picked kind of thrash D beat stuff hits really hard at the beginning and then kind of starts to blur together. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, th- that opening stuff you were talking about, the kind of DB oriented stuff, really reminded me a lot of uh, Repulsion in particular, mm. which is. Uh, a great band that's weirdly forgotten. Have you ever listened to uh, Horrified by Repulsion? You know, I have enough to know that it's something I would really like. Back in the day, I just didn't like those. You know, I was grossed out by the gross-out lyrics. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, because like, uh, it's right up your alley, dude. You would love I, I know it that is, record. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, sh- I should go back to that. Yeah, so that's very Repulsion. And then you've got this big... Um, sort of autopsy, like, in the grip of winter style uh, doom part, um, which actually lands because they do it relatively infrequently. There's not a prescribed doom part for every song, which is one of the problems with a lot of these kinds of bands. And then I described the kind of the remainder of the track as a sort of war metal incantation, Um but maybe more specifically for something more modern, like uh, Father Befouled would do something very similar to that. Also worthy of note is that blast beats, like true blast beats on this record, are fairly rare. This is mostly more interested in operating kind of thrash beat and D-beat territory. And uh, just some of the intervals on this, especially on that last riff, are reminding me again of uh, Cryptopsy. Who I'm starting to perceive mm. oh. as, oh yeah, yes, that's a band that cares about the D beats. Yeah, I'm also I'm starting to perceive Cryptopsy ever since we did that our first bonus episode. We talked about them as this crucial connective tissue between different eras and different styles of death metal, who did the difficult work of finding a way to tie these kind of myriad ideas from different corners of the scene together and i'm finding that a lot of the the most varied and interesting bands in this sort of throwback death metal style 
end up sounding like Cryptopsy sort of accidentally a lot of the time. That makes sense. I mean, these guys probably like Cryptopsy. You know, uh, they're from Canada. Does so. sound, <laughs> this also does sound gross in the way Cryptopsy sounds gross, you know? Yeah, yeah, it does. Which I think, you know, we've talked about. I think that's an important part of death metal. Is like, if there's anything I resent in death metal, it's when death metal got uh, got classy, you know? That's that's the worst thing that ever happened to the style of music. It's like, even if well, your ideas are... Well, we'll get are... into that with the next review. <laughs> yeah, I guess we will. But I think for death metal, even if your ideas are more high-minded, the music should still sound gross. Which is why... Wormed is a brutal death metal band about math and space that's cool uh, because they still sound gross and there's a bunch more who don't and are lame. <laughs> yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me. Or like Morbid Angel. I mean, I definitely like the black metal-y parts of Morbid Angel, but the death metal-y parts are always there and the death metal-y parts sound gross. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, Blessed Are the Sick leading the rats sounds fucking gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All um, right, so what's, uh, what's your last one? So, on that note, on Blast Beats, um, you know, uh, yeah, very rarely used, but uh, there are some great blasting parts. I found that on this record, sometimes with a really good record, it's very hard to pick your favorite parts. Mm -hmm. Either because they're just so many great parts you can't choose or because as often happens with the music we like on this show it all sounds the same and it's all sick right it's you know you might as well just throw a dart at the track listing <laughs> um but um but with this record for some reason with this record for some reason it was all great but it was very clear to me what the highlights were to me personally huh. um so, so uh, that first passage I really like. Just I think because there's such there's such definition to these different parts, and I think it's almost like although kinds of riffs repeat throughout the record, I think there are very few interchangeable sequences. Yeah, I think this is I think this is a death metal album for people who are very seriously into the genre. Uh, because it's interesting you said standout parts because I would say this is definitely a record where everything sounds basically the same, but the appreciation comes from a deep knowledge of death metal and being able to pull apart the individual threads of the songs and the sort of subtle variations of it. So it's interesting that certain moments stuck out to you much more dramatically. Well, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not the death metal guy, but I think I know something about death metal. Uh, and, um, <laughs> we certainly spend a lot of time paying attention to songs, right? So yeah. it's, I, I guess what I mean is just like, if you take any group of three or four riffs, and especially any of the more memorable, any of the more sort of hooky or unique passages on this album, those mm -hmm. don't really repeat. There's no moment where it's like, you know, that cool six, that really intense six eight thing I liked. Yeah, he never does that again. Uh, mm -hmm. or you know, there's like ten different versions of what a D beat riff can sound like on this record. Uh, mm -hmm. so here's a good example. Here's a cool part 
definitely some blasting, very climactic, probably the most quote-unquote melodic, that is most consonant stuff on the record. Um, doesn't happen before, doesn't happen again. And this track has a brilliant name. It's called Thrawing in Agony. <laughs> I That's looked it up. T-H-R-A-W-I-N-G. I looked it up. It does appear to be a real word. It's just no very. Shit. What does it mean? Yeah, uh, like uh, twisting or uh, contorting, basically. Uh, it's a uh, oh. yeah. It's like a, a weird kind of like Scott dialect thing, and it's very archaic, but it does appear to be real. Well, that's. I mean, either way, it's cool. But I really wish they had made up their own verb. You know, <laughs> um, making up words in death metal needs to come back, dude. Yeah, it's like thaw. It's like thaw, but with an R. It's like you know your organs are thawing and they're exploding. Um, uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, so let's yeah, let's just listen to this sick part. melodic riff is really sick and i would say that you know as much as you probably want to hear more of that what makes it so great is that it's the only time that happens on the record no no i completely agree i i don't want to hear more of it i think it uh for this band uh that's as much as you'd want because that preserves the specificity of it as death metal um mm -hmm. but even yeah, I mean, there's so much you could say about that. Like, so it really, it stands out at every level, right? It's the one thing like that on this record. Uh, the, and, and more than that, like, if you go to the riff on a granule level, right? It, you know, this band never falls into set forms, basically. Mm -hmm. They've done work on everything to make cool clearly defined riffs so you know we get da 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 and up till there we're on okay this is cool this is a change this sounds kind of epic big octave swoop um you know but it's a familiar kind of death metal pattern da 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 ba damn right there's just this kink in the riff this like the the next mm -hmm. parts come too fast the timing changes and that would sound sick at any time, but 
if you listen to a lot of death metal, you I guess as you say, you appreciate it even more because you realize that's not how that pattern goes. Yeah, that's about no, as close. That's, that's, that's what I was thinking when I was listening. Yeah, <laughs> that's about as close as death metal gets. Well, I mean, riffs like that are the basis for the kind of shitty cavern core that imitates black metal and just sits on riffs, sits on notes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that would be a good version of one of those riffs, but it just refuses to be, right? Uh, yeah. It, it keeps the momentum going, even in the blasting part. And then, and then they just throw into this bizarre kind of melodic speed metal thrashy part. And, uh, you know... I see how it relates to what's around it. And um, again, they just do it once. So it's just this little sort of a uh, little spicy bit. Reminds me a bit of that band Draggar we reviewed over the summer. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that. Back. Well, I think I think a lot of these guys, because Draggar did strike me on this record as well as uh, what was Brandon's other band we covered? Was it Azerath? Azath. 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 Yeah. Um, I think that which I, I really I, liked, but you shamed me for. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember shaming you. I think it just didn't really do much for me. I like the drag car a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's just a lot of similar DNA. I think both like Brandon from those bands and these guys are pulling from a lot of the same sort of proto death metal territory. So some of these mm-hmm. kind of coincidental phrases will crop up. But as far as that melodic riff goes specifically, it is exactly like you said. And what I would compare it to is like the cool dissonant side of French black metal where it's like, oh, you've got, you know, the kind of romantic longing riff that just sours at the end. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, it just blue balls you. You never get this uh, this full realization of the glorious melody you wanted. It just gets like gross and weird Mm -hmm. at the end instead. And uh, mm-hmm. that's a great technique that should be used constantly in extreme metal, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is a... Um, yeah, so that's really good. Uh, my other just overall thought about this record, which I was going to make the basis for one of my samples, but decided not to derail the conversation by doing, is uh, that this is more evidence for my case that High on Fire is, in fact, a death metal band uh, at their best. <laughs> We're definitely going to have to do like a uh, a bonus episode about them or something at one point since you you've been talking about this for like the better part of a year now. Yeah, I'm going to do my high on fire conspiracy theory. Um but um but like if you listen to the first track on this record, the first track is extremely Celtic Frostish, very just ripping DB, has a lot of them Aster Death Strike thing and it's got these big it pulls up into these big ringing, clanging chords that have some texture in them, uh, and it just sound. And even his vocals there, he's got a kind of a yowling thing on the vocals. It sounds kind of like High on Fire, man. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I mean, the, the, actually, that's not, worth talking not, about. That's worth mentioning. The vocal performance on this record, both of the members do vocals, and they're really fucking good. Yeah. Um. And, you know, that's not to say, I mean, do these guys like High on Fire? Well, it would be weird if they didn't, but I, I doubt that's, I doubt that they were like mainlining Death is This Communion while listening to this, while writing this, <laughs> right? But I, I think more what it probably speaks to is some common DNA I didn't realize in that, sure, there's the Celtic Frost, Hellhammer, 
you know, probably Deathstrike Master thing going on for those bands. But also, you know, Matt Pike probably really liked Autopsy. Yeah. Who you mentioned as an influence for this album throughout, and maybe for some mm-hmm. of the punkier aspects of it and the doomier aspects. Definitely. And, like, it, it's hard to see Matt Pike being as into, like, Incantation. Maybe Morbid Angel, because of the chording. He, he uses some weird chords like that. But, like, you could really see him being into Autopsy, because he was part of that same sort of, like, West Coast, like, deeply, uh, deeply scuzzy West Coast stoner biker metal punk thing, right? <laughs> you know? Are you yeah, passing him a that. spliff, or are you passing... Are you passing a spliff or is that meth? Right. <laughs> Who knows until you smoke it, buddy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. I. Oh. T- to sum it up. Um. Overall, really excellent record. Um. I am really curious about these guys. This is their this is their second record. Their first in five years. Um. I hope they get more active, because I think. Just with developments in death metal over the past couple years, they're probably a lot more relevant than they were at the beginning. Because now we can see them in a continuity with these other Memento Mori bands, Numa Hagion, these other guys that are finding a, a, a new concept of old school death metal that isn't mindless worship. And I hope this album gets attention from people who are going to pick up on these ideas and expand upon them. Dude, I just thought of a really good name for an OSDM band. <laughs> Mind Mindless Worship. <laughs> that that could probably be like a like an incubus, like a serpent temptation kind of album title or something. Mindless Worship. Yeah, if you want to um if anyone wants to uh lease that band name from Terminus, you can have it for um uh twenty bucks a year plus royalties. It <laughs> sounds good. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's take a break and uh, go down to Australia for a bit. Hey, it's Kari from Sepulchre Curse, and I'm Yaku. You're listening to Terminus. All right, we are back, and we've got Stargazer's Psychic Secretions. And uh, you've got a lot more experience with these guys than I do. So uh, what's the story here? Well, I, you know, by a lot more. I mean, I guess that means, you know, I suppose it's it's easy to have a lot more than zero. But I wouldn't <laughs> say much. Um, so, you know, I listened to... I guess Stargazer were probably one of the first more proggy or weird or conspicuously arty metal bands I liked very much. Um, and I, I checked them out because they came out of this sort of Australian war metal scene, kind of. Uh, and they... I, I listened to them some back, I remember, around like 2010 or 11 or something. Uh, and just whatever random shit I was able to download. So I think the songs I really remember, that was around when you know, the scream that tore the sky was sort of current for them then. Uh, what they've, they've been around since the mid nineties and this, uh, 
The Scream That Tore the Sky was their 2005 album. Okay. And then in 2010, they did a great work of Ages. So I, I might have listened to some of Great Work of Agent, a- Ages, but the thing I really remember listening to was a very early split they did with Hostor call, uh Their side of the split was, or a split they did, sorry, with Invocation. Uh, and, uh, Invocation side was called Hostor, and their side was called Harbringer. Um, and I remember the songs off uh, Harbringer being quite good. They were sort of recognizably in this tradition of kind of... Uh, arrogant or intolerant sounding war metal right this sort of swaggering black death stuff that's very melodic um but definitely spacey definitely with a lot of rhythmic breathing space um and uh with just kind of beautiful shimmering otherworldly sorts of melodies that uh i think became prominent on things like inquisition records after you know after like 2012 or you know something yeah like, like uh, so, uh ominous very a, very ahead of their exactly so so stargaze were very ahead of a certain sort of both the sort of cosmic death or black metal trend that became huge and also very ahead of the move towards sort of glorious sounding consonant melodies Although the way that Stargazer played them back in the day was always maybe over this bed of deeper harmony than you would get mm-hmm. now, maybe. And it always sounded a little weirder. And they always had this strangely warm, fuzzy, organic guitar tone, which has been carried very far on this record. But, um, yeah, let's listen to some... Uh, just to give you an idea of the context for this record and how far this band's come... Uh, or how much they've changed. Let's listen to this first, uh, a sample from just the only shit I know from that split. Uh, (laughs) I have no idea what track this is because this is at this point so obscure that nobody's bothered timestamping it. Um, so it's probably a track like Conspirator's Wind or Interterrestrial Black Twilights. Although the tracks whose names I remember are, uh, they had names like Totalitarian Wormholes and Abstract Flames Burn White. Great, very memorable (laughs) titles. Um, Alright, let's try it. Yeah. 
All right, so what do you make of that? Uh, it's very, to my ear, it's very Obsu. Um, it's very Obsu with a certain kind of like more aggressive war metal inflection. It also reminds me a little bit of the most aggressive sort of early parts of stuff like, uh, if you remember Meads of Asphodel. There was a little bit oh, of that. Oh, jeez! I, I only remember the. I've only heard the really weird Meads of Asphodel, but yeah. Um, early, early Meads of Asphodel is more like black metal, like a, just a particularly weird breed of it. Before they went totally off the rails and just started doing weirdo experimental records, you know. Exper- put in it kindly. <laughs> what well, bad? Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Let's say meme-oriented records. Uh, Before memes were even a thing, they were a meme band. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, Star yeah, Stargazer is part of this sort of weird, very insular kind of alternate universe Black Death Thrash thing that is a world you're not that familiar with or into. But the best, the example of that that we heard last year, we heard from that uh, Prezier comes out of this. So does Mongrel's Cross. Mongrel's Cross, also Australian, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And you can hear the influence of stuff like Armored Angel with that kind of melodic and occult sound. Uh, You can hear some Bestial Warlust in there. Um, But Stargazer is also really influenced by, like, basically just the hyper-melodic kind of swaggering vibe you get in GBK and Dark Oslan. They're basically... Like, um, their other band, Cauldron Black Ram, is really uh, similar to that. So let's listen real quick to Cauldron Black Ram. This is sort of the side project, but it gives you an idea of the backing in War Metal. And the similarities you'll hear is that they take that kind of... There's this sense of time, this like heavy use of like double bass flam and kind of weirdly involved rolling triple-time grooves that yeah. GBK and Argoslent more so have. And it's kind of this insular, hermetic, rhythmic vocabulary that only them and bands influenced by them use. But mm-hmm. Stargazer's thing was like taking that and saying like, wow, we can use these ideas to make sort of like very rhythmically involved, like very melodic, sort of free black death metal. So, uh, but on Cauldron, Ram- Cauldron, Black- Blah. Cauldron Black Ram... <laughs> They use those rhythmic that youth rhythmic freedom to make stuff that is absolutely monged. <laughs> All right, um, let's try it. So, so this is the beginning of Verily Hollow Demon.
so that's fucking sick, right? And it's also about pirates. That's cool, because that just sounds like... uh, It's funny, because you tie it to all this Australian stuff. I mean, that's really just, like, basically Beharit with, like, a groovy rhythm. Which makes it Ride for Revenge, which is cool. (laughs) But the groovy rhythm specifically is coming from those American bands. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that is straight Arakos Lent, like, galloping through Battle Ruins type shit. Yeah, those sort of swaggering, flamboyant, heavy metal rhythm Rhythms that weren't even really in heavy metal, but sort of are like that. It just, somebody's idea of, you know, uh, somebody's idea of, of you know, arrogant medieval riffs. Um, but, like, yeah, man, that... Uh, so Cauldron Black Ram is like taking that and making it absolutely brainless. Um, I'm sure they like Beharit and Ride for Revenge also, for sure. <laughs> you you know, you could also... Ride for Revenge definitely also exists in this kind of... Its own kind of alternate universe, extreme metal universe, right? Yeah, where, where metal... <laughs> where metal only exists in basements in Finland. And the world outside of them has disappeared. <laughs> There's a band from Australia called Lustration that's like halfway between this kind of sort of epic war metal-y stuff and halfway between Ride for Revenge that you'd really like. And they have like... Oh, that sounds tight. Their lyrics are like... Their lyrics are like... It's like ancient aliens shit. Okay, cool. I'll definitely have to check that out then. That sounds <laughs> yeah. sick. Yeah. I, I <laughs> for, for clarification, I literally have a Ride for Revenge tattoo. So I'm the king of bad decisions, baby. And, <laughs> and and who's the super cool guy who got you into Ride for Revenge? You are the guy. I actually want to get it modified uh, because I I just got the uh, the King of Snakes on me the very first mm-hmm. album, which is not yeah. my favorite. My favorite is uh, Wisdom it's just of a the cool Few logo. Yeah, it's it's very cool. It was good art to translate to a tattoo. But I think even though it's the wrong album, I want to get it in, inscribed along the edge of the snake. Morning won't bring a twinkling star for the uh, the first oh, yeah, so, the first song you showed me that got me really into them. That is the song. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've got uh, my old Ride for Revenge shirt started ripping at the shoulder, although I still got it. So I got a new one this past spring that has um, the snake, which is I think like a Braxis, you know the. Um, Mm-hmm. the gnostic demon or whatever but uh or like a basilisk or something or both but um it's got the crowned serpent um and he glows in the dark on the back of the that's head. pretty sick but back to yeah. back back to the album at hand i guess <laughs> i would describe that as strictly relevant but um <laughs> yeah, in terms great. of in terms of scale and melodic sensibility and ambition, I guess it's sort of, and now, for something completely different. Um, <laughs> because what does, what does Stargazer sound now? Because Stargazer back then, you could hear how it's connected to war metal and stuff. But Yeah, I mean, I think I, think I still argue with you about the way you define war metal. I think my view of it is more narrow than yours, but I guess that's kind of, you know, eye of the beholder shit anyway, so. Okay, okay, you could call it crip, you could call it esoteric black thrash or whatever, right? Or, you know, like, uh, you know, again, people say arrogant death metal. There are all these different other niches to describe that kind of thing. Um, Invictus Productions circa 2008, 
you know. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think of, like, when I think of Australian war metal, the only thing that really comes to mind is Bestial Warlust, like you mentioned. But Bestial Warlust sounds more like this than, like, ba you know, whatever, fucking, uh, than, like, you know, Blasphemy does. Um, you think so? You think Bestial Warlust doesn't sound I like, went... uh, Blasphemy? It does sound like blasphemy, but I went back and checked last night because I I haven't really listened to them that much. My my go to Australian band in that scene is Gospel of the Horns, which is more thrashy, mm -hmm. but um, and also sort of relevant to this. But uh, Bestial Warlust is it's got crisper riffs. They're they're higher end. There's a lot more noise on the guitar, like in terms of upper that kind of metallic sounding noise that I like. Mm -hmm. Bathory or you know blasphemy and Bathory is much more low end fuzz chug 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 I think I, and, I would um, compare the style I compare, that's, it's more death yeah I compare Bestial Warless more towards like a blood upon the altar like blasphemy like the demo mm. I, I don't even know if I know that one but um it doesn't matter it's, it's uh, not good but <laughs> <laughs> it's not actually good but yeah um Anyway, so, but this record in particular. Yeah, what have you got? so, you got? I mean, this is, they've carried the melodic thing and the rhythmic involvement very, very far. Um, and I think it's fair to say now that um, this is extremely proggy and... Uh, you know, you know, this is almost like the evil twin of that Mephitis record from last week. In that Mephitis was very proggy in some ways and kind of almost not metal anymore in a way that was cool. This is very proggy and kind of almost not metal anymore in a way that is debatable. That's... <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, it's it's fairly debatable, I would say. Well, I don't know. Ultimately, uh, I I feel like our our positions are probably predictable at this point. What do you think of this as a whole? Well, actually, you know what? Before that, we we've talked enough. Let's play a sample from this album so we know what, what we're getting into. Why don't what we'll do is. What we'll do is I'll play what I think the two strongest passages on the record are, and then I'll get into the know, stuff that really rubs um, me the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what we got first? Yeah. Um. So uh, this is from Star Vassal. Um. So I think this is probably just the strongest passage on the record. Uh, you'll hear like a pretty cool theme introduced very quickly. And then there's this real kind of riff development in a sort of classically way. Um, and then a really big riff. And we'll talk about it this a little more after. But this gives you a sense of like how this record sounds at its most focused.
that mysterious lick at the end. <laughs> <sighs> yes, it's very, it's very mysterious, Black Metal Guy. It's, uh, doesn't this just, to you, sound like a sort of version of the sickening horror record we covered last year? Um, a little bit. How so? Explain. Remind the people also. So, Sickening Horror, uh, Greek tech death band started doing sort of, uh, they were kind of a, a flash in the pan thing, which is unfair because they're legitimately good. Uh, they started by doing sort of an abstract gore guts derived form of tech death and then became a little bit more conventional later on. We reviewed their newest record last year, which I would say we both basically liked, um, but I think yeah. one of the things that we talked about that is pretty important is that <clears throat> at a certain point, tech death is not really death metal. It's more just where a very sort of proggy take on thrash ends up. And that's, I mean, one of the cruxes of my argument about this record is that I don't really read it as a black or death record. I think of it as a very proggy, technical kind of thrash record in large part. I don't even know if it... I, I don't know if you can call it a thrash record either because it doesn't thrash, right? Whereas, like, Psychroptic... <laughs> Psychroptic thrashes very frequently. But this does... You're right. This, I mean, it's... You know, Mongrel's Cross uses palm mutes in kind of unexpected ways. And I guess this is kind of like... This is a different unexpected use of palm mutes. So maybe that's fair. Yeah. I, yeah, that, that might be fine. It's, it's kind of thrashy for sure. Um... Uh, so what what made that good to me is well you know there's this I think you all could hear the sense of development there there's rapidly shifting but related riffs motivically and then there's this drops into this pretty cool unusual building pedal point pattern that's a little thrashy which is like it's sort of like a familiar kind of epic riff, but it's broken up rhythmically in cool ways. That, And they, they do this sort of stretch and this push and pull, this sort of playing with the time and the rhythmic relations between the different lines in a way that's very jazzy. Um, mm. This is one of the least jazzy moments on the record, I'd say. It's like the jazzy moments being sort of put at the service of something closer to metal heaviness. But... It's not, you can see, like, the way you headbang to that is not like metal headbanging. It's like a jazz guy sitting in your chair, sort of rocking from the middle of your body. Um, yeah, it's not, it's, I would say that a lot of the, the jazz on this comes from the bass performance, which is way, way out in front of a lot of this music. Yeah, so you could also probably hear... Um, fretless bass rolling under that riff and there again the fretless bass pedaling is relatively restrained it's doing a cool kind of contrapuntal thing but the guitars are out in front in that big build um mm -hmm. uh yeah but there is fretless bass and there is no effort made to play the fretless bass in a specifically metal way this basically sounds like you know uh you know uh you know, that, that one passage is a little bit like D666 feet Yako Pastorius. <laughs> it's, uh, well, it could, uh, it, it's, it could also be... Yeah, another thing this could be is sort of like a modern Psy record at its heaviest, you know? Who's Psy? What do you mean? 
Uh, Psy, the Japanese band. Oh, S I G H. Yeah, I see. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, um, so you know, yeah. This part is a little bit like a kind of. So I kind of like the in parts like this where there's kind of a heavy heavy riff ideas, melodic figures, and the band is kind of digging in in a cool way. I kind of like the strange anti-heaviness of the production and mm -hmm. just the general it's performance. like the, the hyper midsy kind of woody tone. Yeah, and as you said, it almost sounds like they've recorded the guitars from amps not turned up. <laughs> I used it in a different context, but yeah, yes, I did describe it. Feels like a lot of this record was recorded at a very low volume and then amplified in the mixing process or something. Yeah, and you know, look, like that's never going to be my favorite thing because you know, well, we like big, we we like extreme metal, but I, I get that there's something unique about that. Um, and I think at its best in moments like this, this record does kind of work as astral, cool wizard music, um, mm -hmm. sort of like intense, kind of meditative, um, a little bit, a little bit creepy, but pretty life affirming. Um, uh, but, you know, you could hear that little lick flying off at the end into Prague territory, right? But um, here's another part that is good. I would say the other best part. And it's on, like, the next track. So there's something where there's this, like, very focused material in the middle of the record. Um, and it mm -hmm. all sounds a little bit more like the kind of melody you'd get on their older records. We didn't... Uh, my sample didn't really get one of those, but you've heard it now on this on Star Vassal, and you'll hear it again here. Uh, um, definitely close to those classic arrogant death metal melodies. Uh, let's go to about a minute into Hooves. You could hear basically the same principle engaged at the beginning of that, right? You get this kind of brooding minor key build. Uh, the bass is more active there, but almost doing a kind of a, a Latin thing, but it sounds cool, at least to mm -hmm. me. Sort of 
creates that kind of um, uh, tense but open time, like you get in Defeated Sanity, but basically kind of the opposite of Defeated Sanity in terms of heaviness, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and and then you get that massive kind of pentatonic bum 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 which is just pretty cool and i like the fretless bass under that i think that works um that's definitely one of the biggest hooks on the album and it's a a quote unquote dumb riff idea of a kind that i think the death metal guy and i would both appreciate in its own artist you're, you're talking about that that kind of like slide riff early on. That's a that's yeah. a very good riff. It's interesting. Yeah, and it's like it's a it's a kind of it's a quote unquote dumb melodic structure that we would both like in its unvarnished form, right? In like barbarian black metal or something. But here they do it with this involved rhythmic stuff and these little you know these constant returns to the root note and this sense of stretching uh, and elongation that makes it. Again, sort of uniquely and differently heavy. Mm-hmm. Then they break it up with this kind of jagged, broken, sort of dissonant chording stuff. Okay. Then we're in fretless bass territory. Yes, we are, Black Metal Guy. Don't you like Welcome hearing to... the Don't you like hearing the bass? Don't you like hearing how good at bass he is? Yeah, um, gosh, yeah, not right there. Not not right there, I don't. That's that's for sure, right? So there's, you could hear that fading out into what is essentially a jazz fusion fretless bass solo, um, which is, you know, uh, I can feel an issue of I can feel the hope fading in your voice. (laughs) <laughs> I can feel I can feel the the light dimming. I I I can feel the 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 mounting weight of this record on your shoulders. <laughs> yes, I, I did I did bring it on the show. Um but um yeah, and I was and initially when I listened to it, it was those kind of moments that really stood out to me and you know, uh it is very unique. Um, and it's interesting. <laughs> that oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I don't. I don't hate this. I I don't hate it as much as you do. Is what I mean. Um, there's just there's but, but the way you like. the way you said it, it was so fucking diplomatic. Like it's very unique. No, I'm I'm trying to also <laughs> I'm trying to also be concessive to you. I don't think I fully worked out how I feel about this, but. I, on my first listen, I, I was like, okay, let's listen with an open mind, you know, like we do for the show. And I was like, okay, this literally, this makes sense if I listen to it like a jazz fusion record. Maybe that's mm-hmm. what I'm supposed to do. And then it's like kind of interesting. Then it's like, okay, how did this Australian barbarian death metal band follow that thread to something that sounds so jazzy or proggy? Um and you know, um, there's something interesting there. Uh, but those big moments stood out the most to me. Going see, back I've... over it after talking with you, I hear more of the stuff that caught your attention. Well, I think, well, it's it's kind of interesting to me because there were definitely like like that riff on hooves 
I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the few parts that stuck out to me that I really liked. But I guess what's interesting is, for me, like, most of this record just, like, breezed right past me. Like, it just, it did not capture my attention nearly in the way it seemed to for you. Like, this was, I mean, geez, I this is a record where I could not remember a lot of it as soon as the last yeah, track well, was done. That's kind of how jazz works, too, right? Like, you have to, like, it requires a certain, you know, people say metal requires a suspension of disbelief, which I've never understood, because I just believe. This is our world, um, bitch. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Welcome to reality. Um, but But in jazz, like, it requires a certain kind of, like, um, very active intentional listening to get into mm-hmm. it at all I get and that. like i don't know i didn't listen to this in a super intense way and i wouldn't i wouldn't say when i was hearing it i was just being onslaughted by sick riffs it was more that like the first time i listened i was like okay let's see where this goes what it's doing and the sort of developmental stuff the little variations the changes and the cool kind of give and take in the timing of it that all kind of made sense to me. And I was like, okay, I guess this is a place where Stargazer could have gone. Um, I also was just trying not to do the things I did. When I was younger, I would have absolutely hated this. Um, And I would have jumped probably to the same parts you pulled. And maybe (laughs) in an effort to be, maybe in an effort to be open-minded, I've sort of, uh, you know, basically just, Took those for what they were and ignored them. Essentially, I, but I like, get that. That's not necessarily That's not necessarily the right response, right? Well, I don't. I, I don't <laughs> so, want. I, I don't want to approach my section of this review as though I was ready to hate this. You know, because uh, I'm just not that familiar with Stargazer. I think I remember hearing. I think I might have had like a CD, like a comp of some of their early demos, and it was like fine to me i don't really remember it distinctly Mm. but it didn't stand out as particularly great or particularly terrible um so don't like just because i hear like prog black or something that's not necessarily a problem i mean i'm the guy that talks about like vintersorg all the time on this show and about how it's like some of the coolest music no one cares about often you're the guy pushing me to listen to things that i think are like you know, wonky or whatever. Yeah. Uh, especially, um, uh, you know, on uh, with this, uh, I feel like sometimes I'll be the one who's like, no, this, this, this shall not pass. Um, but, um, yeah, well, but, 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 it's but like I, get different no, I get, I get that you weren't just, I get that you weren't just primed to hate this. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, you are, the things that we're primed to hate are a little bit different. You are primed to hate certain kinds of, like, extremely emo or, like, just, like, mm-hmm. retard, consonant, melodic black metal riffs. And I totally understand ideas, your perspective. Yeah. Exactly. The yeah. the extremely mm-hmm. pop-oriented ideas, a lot of which I love. And I get it. Because it, it's totally a matter of perspective and, like, what you're going to black metal for. 
my my issue with this record is a little bit deeper where oh, I mean this isn't oh, it's deep look this isn't this isn't like terrible music but it reflects a lot of stuff that I think I I had a huge animosity towards like when we first started writing about metal together back around like 2010 like those real dark days 2009 2010 and -hmm. it's just like this strikes me as the kind of record that would have been huge with like Pitchfork back in 2008 it's it's sort of hard to say you know because like the riffs that were or the the bands that were big back then were like um Cascadian well, black I mean, metal you know, yeah yeah there were there were bands or you know like Kralis or um the the least interesting aspects of DSO or whatever right they were all interested in this music that showed how special it was by not writing riffs and yeah. i guess this record, this record does, or and also in some cases, just by literally not understanding what a what a riff was, right? But like, <laughs> on th- this, the, the thing about this band is that it, at least to me, at least to me, because I'm familiar with this scene, I can tell that it comes out of this tradition of like frenetically riffy kind of stuff, and there are things on the record that scan like the parts I pulled as really big riffs. In a way that I think almost would have been like, I, I get know, that. No, there there are frightening I'm not gonna, people in two thousand eight. <laughs> I mean, there's there's actual riffs on this record, but they're not like repeat. This is not a band that has any any interest in being a heavy metal band. I I think I can no, say no. that and, and also, confidently. Okay, I think I also will meet you where like it's kind of like this is a band that comes out of what I consider to be an extremely legitimate line of sort of elitist black death metal. People also mention the chasm a lot in relation to them. Would mm-hmm. and they come out of this line of stuff and I can still hear all that in it, which might be why I have more time for it than you do. However, mm-hmm. It's an awful lot like guys in that scene accidentally arriving at something very pitchforky. Yeah. Well, okay. So to clarify my position a little more, here's an example of the sort of thing that I resent on this record. Uh, <laughs> this is off. Uh, this is off the Occidental Scourge. Oh, is it? Is it the Australian scene? Oof, who knows. Jesus Christ. Anyway, uh, so the Occidental Scourge. Here's uh, here's the big Dark Throne riff, boys. Let's see how it stacks up to uh, Under a Funeral Moon.
How'd you like that Dark Throne riff, buddy? We can we can still do black metal. We can. <laughs> Did you like how gnarly it was, and like how how like sick and what's what's the country the Dark Throne's from? Oh, uh, Norwegian. It sounds. Do you like that? Did you like? Did you did you enjoy? I think they're I think they're familiar with Dark Throne. Did you enjoy how grim it was? <laughs> I know they're familiar with Dark Throne, and if they're that familiar with Dark Throne, they're that good at playing their instruments. Why did we just get like an under a funeral moon like breakdown, but with like a weird rhythm? We couldn't get like a further elaboration on that idea. Like that's 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 what we got. Yeah, well, the weird rhythm is a little bit Cauldron Black Ram, but I hear how, uh, yeah, with that basically does just sound like a Dark Throne breakdown. And once you mention Dark Throne in relation to this band, or in relation to that song, uh, you know, I like the riff at the beginning pretty well. The riff at the beginning is a good example of what this band is doing when they're being kind of like proggy but riffy uh and yet, yeah that also does sound very dark throne i was almost wondering if these guys are like one of those people who are like one of these bands that are intentionally really into goat lord i do like goat lord a lot actually i think it's underrated i know i know you do i know you do so i'm wondering if there's some goat lord filtering into this although yeah like i mean if that's like goat lord has similar kinds of bizarre ideas on it um not like the fretless bass stuff obviously but like that kind of weirdo tram running up to the the strut breakdown is i think pretty goat lord yeah now goat lord is definitely i mean i mean goat lord was supposed to be the successor to soulside journey and which and soulside journey was already a very weird kind of death metal album and uh mm-hmm no, I, I can kind of see that. That's an interesting comparison. I think that the issue for me is just... And this could totally be me projecting. Is just like when the band is doing stuff like... Jazz fusion breaks and fretless bass solos. And they do one of those riffs. I feel kind of condescended to. You know what I mean? It's like... Oh, is this what you want? Is this what the baby metalhead needs to listen to our very advanced ideas? <laughs> you know? like, I, I, I feel like you're doing too much thinking for them. Which... I mean, probably. Yeah, yeah like... Which, I mean, like... You know, I mean, we all do that to some degree, right? Uh... But, like, you know, is it a great riff? No. <laughs> it's not a great riff. Um, it's, uh, like, I, I think it has something to do, I mean, maybe it's more like a sign of incoherence. That, that is, like, I think the, I think yeah. the, I think the, con, the conceit of this band which is one I'm perfect interested in. I'm a conceit to which I completely buy in and which I got about their earlier stuff was this is a band that's grounded in very extreme metal attempting to do some sort of deliberately remote and refined and delicate take on it without really abandoning that route. But then if you get to this extreme, but if you get drive it to this extreme, 
maybe it starts to get a little schizophrenic because I agree that the Dark Throne breakdown alongside the, the, the fretless bass stuff doesn't, you know. <laughs> doesn't yeah. click, exactly. <laughs> and, and that is the one time they do some breakdown like that on the record, right? Basically, yeah. I mean, I mean, you could argue that, like, the cool riff on Hooves that you played is sort mm-hmm. of Dark Throne adjacent. But yeah, that's that's a one-off. But there's other, like, one-off kind of, like, dumb metal ideas that happen periodically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh... So it's yeah. like they keep trying to sig. So it's like they've gone really proggy, but they keep trying to signal that they're still a metal band. And maybe yeah. in those gestures... Mi- Maybe those gestures sort of give the game away in a way that's awkward, where, you know... Yeah. But I'm, I'm yeah, going to be fair. But, but I'm going to be completely fair. So I chose, like... <laughs> for my last sample, I chose, like, a really, like, progressive and emotional passage. And... <laughs> and if you don't like it, you're just not being open-minded enough. So let's listen to the opening... <laughs> Hey, 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 why are you laughing? All right, this is serious music. This is serious music for serious people, Black Metal Guy. So let's listen to the opening couple minutes off of the final track of the record, Pilgrimage, uh, a title that is already um, very compelling. So let's listen to the first couple couple minutes of Pilgrimage. That was just that was just that was just a perfect Brandon Stasoy, right? That was just like, yeah, <laughs> like if you have a problem with if you have a problem with it, like maybe you're backwards. Um, maybe you need yeah, to look maybe maybe yeah. you should look at yourself a little bit. Alright, so pilgrimage, first couple <laughs> minutes. Right, let's, go. let's fucking do it, man.
Dude, that's like really soulful. Like after <laughs> after listening to that, like I look back, I feel, I feel like the, I feel like the ghost of, is James Brown dead. Either way, I feel like the ghost, whether he's dead or not, I feel like the ghost of James Brown is about to slap you for saying that. Um, it's like no, dude. It's like I look back on a lot of the music I was listening to, like um, like Slam Death and like really raw black metal and shit. And then I realized, like, you know what it was always missing was that real. That real emotional component. And now that I've heard Stargazer's Pilgrimage, I realize what I was missing the whole time in this kind of music. Like, this is good. This is good. I feel like I've really developed. <laughs> I feel like I've really developed, like, as a person upon hearing that. And I think, that, dude, I think we're going to have to change the format of the show because I think that's. Those are the kind of tunes. And I call them tunes now. Those are the kind of tunes that, like, I want to hear in the future, bro. Yeah, you know, a record's only really good if it's got some tunes on it. Don't yeah. you? Don't you like tunes, bro? I love tunes. I love it when my like extreme metal record has like like a weird bad version of a Pink Floyd song to close it out. And uh, I just feel like I've grown up a lot. You know, since we started the podcast and upon hearing Stargazer, I feel like I'm just like, dude, we got to get past like, oh, being angry and songs about like Satan and killing people. And it's like songs like Pilgrimage. I think that's really where metal needs to go, dude. Does that seem fair? Well, you are the guy who likes emo. Emo is, stuff in metal. So Is this... <laughs> Is it's, this the meanest I've ever been on the show? Holy shit. <laughs> maybe. I, I don't know, man. I think sometimes you're the meanest accidentally. No, you're the meanest. <laughs> you're the meanest when you you're the meanest when you say this is going to sound backhanded butt. Um, <laughs> but, um that was this was at least this was at least a frontal assault. Um uh, <laughs> but it, it was um you know, yeah. Yeah, do I like... I, you know, what I wrote in the notes was, I have no memory of this. What was the second sentence that you wrote in the notes? Trauma causes memory loss. There we go. There we go, yes. buddy. <laughs> and my, my note, uh, my entire note for this was, this is unacceptable. I'm not mad... I'm disappointed. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Bell Witch. Yes, I dude, I thought that when I was listening, it was like that terrible the, the fucking the Bell Witch soulful, collaboration. The soulful bass. You know, uh Oh dude, it's it's rough. And I okay. Bell, I'll be Bell fair. Witch is and in your defense, Bell Witch is one of those pitchfork bands, right? You know. Like, absolutely. Oh, don't worry. No, it's absolutely. Not just, don't worry, it's not just boring old funeral doom. It sounds like rock. <laughs> well, to be fair, like I the pitchfork occasionally stumbles across the right thing. Um and up until that record we covered last year, uh, I would say it was, uh, they were basically correct about Bellwitch, that they were an excellent band. But but yes, the this sort of like delicate, deliberately vulnerable singer-songwriter quality of it, 
is uh, something that should, for the most part, uh, be kept as far away from extreme metal as humanly possible. And uh, I feel like I could kind of drop this in without comment. Although, to be fair, and I will be fair here, this is an isolated occasion. But remember when we reviewed that And Oceans record last year, if you're going to put like a goofy ambient track and say that it's serious music in your black metal record, I'm going to play it on the show and I'm going to talk about it. And if you put a Pink Floyd song on your extreme metal record, I'm going to talk about it, buddy. <laughs> yeah, the And Oceans things were like, see, yeah, that's how I, I think I just deleted that part from my brain because I was like, well, this was bound to happen. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's normally what you do with the bad, the bad ambient things. Right. Uh, but like on that and oceans record, the bad ambient was so bad. It was subtractive. It wasn't like, yes. you couldn't just, and, and I, I feel that about this. There are like, do, do I, do I hate that as much as you did? Huh? There's certain parts of like Dead Can Dance records or certain 80s goth records that sound a little bit like it did at the end, but like the the you know, the the fretless bass and the very sort of sensitive guitar playing and all that is a little Yeah, no. I you wrote that it sounds like Pink Floyd and god I do hate Pink Floyd. You know, I um, my issue is that I like Pink Floyd, so I know what they're doing wrong in the context of Pink Floyd. <laughs> you know, look, man, yeah. like I, yeah, I, I so look, you know, this is the, I'll fully I admit, like, and I like hate, I like hate proggy stuff. So this is probably a case. This could be a case where basically I was like, well, I know there's going to be some proggy stuff on here, so let me broaden my horizons, and I'm just going to bracket all that. And then you're reminding me of a bunch of, like, really obvious things about prog metal and why it mostly sucks. I mean, I'm going to... Mm. Look, man, I'm going to pull it back and just be like, I get that I'm not the target audience for this stuff. But it's also just bizarre that this is out on Nuclear War now. It's bizarre that this is even really being advertised to extreme metal people. It's not an extreme metal record. It is a, a prog record that is using some techniques of extreme metal and the occasional riff to market as influenced by that scene. But it just, it's, it's really not a metal album period, which is not necessarily a problem, it, but yeah, well, it is what no, it is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's basically, it's basically a jazz fusion record that uses melodic ideas drawn from metal. That's, I yeah. mean, that's about it. Um, yeah, man. I, I, I So I'm unsure what to think about it totally, but I think I basically agree with you that it certainly isn't... I can certainly think of about ten Stargazer albums I'd rather hear than this, if you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's like, you know, if the, the, those ideas on the first couple tracks I sampled, if there was a record that was basically built that way, I think I'd like it quite I, it would be like a i'd like it a lot or i'd like it pretty well and i'd return to it in certain moods probably um sort of certain kind of contemplative but intense moods but like this is uh yeah it's you know it reminds me of the thing the other thing that is again to your point 
pitchforky back in the day about it is the way that record critics would always hear direct insertions of 70s prog rock as examples of musical progression yes when in fact it was profoundly retro so like people Mm -hmm. said enslaved got really progressive and they did do some interesting things to their guitars although those things had been done in norway since the 90s uh but like they they when they started adding the pink floyd vocals and like the pink floyd parts that wasn't a forward step that was just these sort of confectionary external influences or external reference points and this this has way more fully integrated the proggy jazz fusiony aspect of it because it kind of just is all that so in a sense it's it's less superficial than just throwing a prog part in your black metal song but it still maybe has that kind of like not being nearly as forward thinking as it's attempting to be. Like I feel like older Stargazer was more forward thinking and indeed oh, yeah. was because was because it predicted the development of the next 10 years of extreme metal whereas this seems very backward thinking in some ways. Yeah. I think I think we basically agree and we can leave it at that. So for an yeah. interlude I, d- I can't remember, have I ever actually played... Have I ever actually played Vintersorg on the show as much as I've talked about him? Oh, God. <laughs> I I'm just saying, hey, All right, let's- here's some prog shit. Here's some prog shit. So here's uh, Vintersorg's uh, Dot Ian uh, uh off Solon's Rotter, uh, which I believe is from like 2004 or 2005. But here is a version of Prague Black that I truly love and I think more people should hear. So I remember really liking some of his, I remember really liking some of his choruses. Oh yeah. No, this is, this is a banger of a record, dude. So let's check it out and uh, we'll be back with the second half of our episode. Yeah. 
All right, and we are back from Vinter's work with something from the other side of the metal spectrum. <laughs> it's uh, everyone's favorite segment on Terminus, where I just drop a, a brutal death record in the midst of all the like high-minded and interesting black metal we're covering and stuff. And uh, this time yeah, it well, is the... What? Well, next up is basically a rock record, so... Uh, yeah. yeah, that's true. This is a little bit of an odd yeah. episode. <clears throat> today I, we've got a very eclectic one we've got we got some death metal we got some proggy something and now we've got uh our slam and then we got some rock yeah we're uh we're very we're very well rounded on this show so um yeah we're almost anyways, a normal metal show yeah so this time uh we've got the debut full length by the charmingly named anal stab wound with the visceral sovereign, you can't get over that name, can you? <laughs> no, it's just yeah. Well, I I like this new thing where all these guys are doing these. Uh, they'll have these insanely brutal names, but then like the lyrical content, the thematic stuff will just be kind of abstract, like cosmic horror or apocalyptic stuff. Um, oh yeah. So. Anal Stab Wound is a one-man project uh, by a guy named Nikhil, and uh, I have been following him for a couple years on YouTube, where uh, he kind of rose to some level of prominence in Brutal Death by doing extremely good uh, guitar covers of Brutal Death songs, and uh, usually providing free tabs as well. Um, oh yeah, that's yeah. Service. Yeah, that is a service. That's actually a, a big thing in Brutal Death, just because it's so difficult to parse what's happening on guitar to be able to learn it by watching and having accurate taps is really important. That stretches back to sites like Rivers mm -hmm. of Gore back in the uh, early mid-2000s and stuff. Um, so that's where he kind of got some fame, and uh, now he's doing his own music, and I guess uh, the, the secret of this, you looked it up, unfortunately, before the show, but uh, uh, Nikhil is 15 years old at the time of this recording, and uh, I don't plan on making too much of that, just because there is a long history of very young guys creating excellent music in the metal scene, but in terms of raw instrumental skill, and songwriting sophistication yeah. at this age, it's kind of hard not when, to mention. Because when Mayhem were 15, they were recording Chainsaw Guts Fuck. You know, exactly. Uh, Emperor, Emperor were very young and relatively sophisticated when they started, but they still recorded, like, the, uh, you know, what was it? The, uh, the Wrath of the Tyrant EP, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um... So I guess uh, this is kind of an interesting record because this is a little bit like uh, kind of the first Brutal Death record we reviewed on the show, which was Oncology's record from last year, um, in mm -hmm. that it is a Brutal Death record where a lot of the riffing ideas seem to reach a lot further back into sort of old school death metal motifs, just punched up and made more extreme in a very modern way. I think I heard that. Yeah, so, I mean, what were your overall impressions of this? Since uh, it's always interesting how you kind of rank the brutal death stuff I show you. Yeah, huh. Um, I, well, let's see. I thought it was extremely impressive overall. You, you know, even leaving aside the age of the performer, it's a pretty, uh, there's something 
Um, there's something very uncompromising about it. Um, mm-hmm. It's basically a uh, straight continuum of about 50 minutes of chug. Um, <laughs> not like not like super slow slams, right? But often these sort of like intricately picked kind of percussive brutal death passages with some like sped up slams in them. Um, very, uh, very uh, kind of I suffocation derived. That makes sense. Yeah. But without kind of the, but like without the, um, without the cargo pants element. <laughs> That's true. Like, <laughs> like there's not, not quite the, um, not quite the mosh groove on this. Um, it's just mm-hmm. brutal. Um, uh, it was, you know, I, I will say that it was a, for that long of a time, I found the guitar tones just maybe to be the wrong tone for me personally. It mm. was certainly thicker than some Brutal Death tone I've heard, but it was also uh, pretty, just pretty punishing, you know, punishing kind of midi, chunky guitar. Um, I really liked some of it, um, and I think there were some very, very, uh, some very powerful high points in it. I also think that in terms of, you know, 50 minutes of chug, I think that is maybe the one respect in which this is the, clearly the band of a young guy, as in, you know how it's, it's basically like, I picked up guitar to make these sick chugging sounds, and by God, I'm going to make these sick chugging sounds. <laughs> Definitely. It does have kind of a single-minded... Like, which is like, be my guest. Yeah, you know, yeah. I love, I, I love the sick chugging sounds, you know? No, I'd, I'd agree that I think... I mean, this is almost 55 minutes long, and I, I do think it mm-hmm. is kind of overlong just for the style. I think mm-hmm. even as a huge Brutal Death fan, once you hit about the 40-minute mark you're kind of stretching it. But I think this guy was just really excited to get all these ideas out. And he's like, fuck it. I've got all these songs. I'm going to put all together right now. You know, here's your giant fucking slab of a record. Um, yeah. And he wanted to get his collaborations on there. Yeah, definitely. He's got collaborations with a, a bunch of guys from around the brutal death scene. Um, he's working on some music with, uh, other guys in Brutal Death, because uh, one thing that's very worthy of note is the fact that uh, there's no drum machine on this. This is He's actually doing his own drumming, and it seems like he's starting some bands, some sort of like internet projects with some fairly well-known dudes, uh, usually as the drummer uh, for those projects. So I'm definitely interested to see uh, what arises out of those. But uh, real quick, just to uh, give everyone an idea... Uh, we'll do a sample, and this one is going to be off Endoparasitic Abomination. Just the opening couple minutes of this, and I think this is a good place to show people the sort of sophistication as far as the riff arrangement on this record goes. So uh, let's try that one out. Yeah, this is this is a great song.
really caught my ear there is, you know, at, you've got this very cool sequence of speedy riffs up front, but then and then it kind of collapses into what would be a normal kind of slam part. But typically what happens in a slam band is you go into your big mosh riff and then quick guitar fill back into like neck snapping blast beat. Here, that's not what happens. Yeah. He commits to another mid-paced riff, um, which is something that you see a lot across this record. It's not resorting to the same sort of uh, typical, just like super sharp contrast that a lot of Brutal Death bands do. Here, there's more sense of like real songwriting, real progression, a real narrative arc to these melodically, which I think really sets it apart from the pack. Yeah, it's definitely different structurally. I mean, I feel like you probably have a better ear for the subtleties of how the slams are changing over, mm -hmm. over the course of the song. Um, I believe that they are. But that's one of the only moments with prominent blasts on the record. I mean, that when I heard that, 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 that moment you picked to me is like the best part on the record. Like when I oh, heard yeah. that, I was like, I, when I heard that, I was like, holy shit. That is fast. I mean, I like the chug before and after it, too. But, like, the way it just launches into that, it's, um... That's one of those things where, like, well, if you say you like extreme music, I... I you gotta like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, uh... Um, it's a very kind of molesting the decapitated by devourment part with that crazy grind riff over it and just this hyperspeed blast beat that's just, like kind of blurring into itself, like falling over itself. It can barely keep it together, which is always a yeah, wonderful Yeah, the guitar effect. is kind of blurred. <laughs> the guitar is kind of blurred. The drums are uh, hitting extremely hard there, and they're not a drum machine, right? No, yeah. He plays, uh, he plays all the drums on this himself because lately he's expanded into doing just full band covers of brutal death songs. So it's just like, Oh yeah, I'll do the Jeez. guitars and I'll do the drums and I'll do the bass. <laughs> he's this kid's covering, he's covering defeated sanity songs on drums. Yeah. I mean, th yeah, yeah, yeah. this is the level that he's at. <laughs> That's impressive. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So I think for that, like, I think a thing I've realized is like, you know, the thing, surprisingly somewhat to me. I think the parts I've liked best on a lot of the Brutal Death records you've showed me over this year have been um, have been the blasting parts and the trem parts. I think it's because I prefer different guitar tones for Chuck. Mm -hmm. So because it's weighted towards this kinds of geometric Chug stuff, that's why I have a little harder time getting my hooks in it, even though it's obviously quite good. Um, so here's another... Yeah, here's another mid here's a mid tempo here's a mid tempo chug part that nevertheless has uh, he builds a cool dramatic moment into this uh, and I found this part pretty memorable. This is in Kingdom of Filth.
It is amazing that in 2021, there's still ways to do new chug riffs. <laughs> yeah, I love that one at the end. That's a great chug. That's like the slam version of the chug at the end of Winters Into Darkness. Um, oh, yeah. No, I think... Uh, oh, no, I really like the one, uh, the uh, the section towards the, the front of that sample where he's doing just kind of an on-the-beat quarter note snare, but then he does a guitar fill that extends the time signature out, and then you've got the snare on the upbeat playing against it. Just this little snare inversion trick. Uh, it's It's simple sounding but it's actually very difficult to do on drums just kind of shifting your perception that eighth note across the bar like that that's fucking awesome i love mm -hmm. it when guys do stuff like that well that's very subtle the part i liked the part that stood out to me was obviously the uh big power chords just sort of uh big open power chords um when he he breaks out of the chug to do this sort of like uh you know, this album is very horizontal in feel because it's mm -hmm. all these rolling grooves. But when he builds that sort of vertical power chord structure, right? Dum, 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 dum. You know, simple riff, but like it adds some good melodic color without being quote unquote melodic. And that riff, I thought like, you know, that, that riff wouldn't be out of place basically on any Scandinavian extreme metal from the early 90s, right? Well, yeah, I think you wrote like, the notes. It's, it's sort it's of like primordial it, extreme metal. It's not really a death metal riff or a black metal riff or anything. It's just this is a an extreme metal riff that you could kind of fit into any band in some sense. Yeah, yeah, pretty much any band. And certainly back in the day, you could hear it on Emperor, you could hear it on Dismember, you could hear it on any number of those bands. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but like, yeah, no, I think that's right. I think I think you're right to extend it further. It's like pretty much any power chord oriented 90s band could play that. Morbid Angel could play that, right? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, I, I think that the secret of a lot of the brutal death that we've been covering and especially a lot of the stuff that you've found yourself enjoying is that mm -hmm. once you get past the sort of maximalist excess of the music with mm -hmm. certain exceptions, most of these bands are a lot more like normal death metal than you think. It's just, it's just yeah, that. Yeah, yeah style taken to its logical conclusion. I mean, you've got exceptions, like something like Molecular Fragmentation from last year. Yeah, that's got nothing to do with normal death metal anymore, but this, although, this is a weirdly, death metal my favorite, Although Molecular Fragmentation and uh, Induced remain my favorites, of anything we've heard. Uh, oh, yeah, well, I mean, Molecular Fragmentation is just a, a war metal record, but with a, a brutal death yeah. aesthetic. Wiggly woobly, wiggly woobly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so uh, so here's another one, just another very cool riff development kind of sample. And this is off the okay. last track of the record, "Sentence to the Fire." Um, so it's it, this is a section where these individual riffs are good. But not necessarily, they're not supposed to be giant riffs on their own. But the way they develop is in this kind of very mature and nuanced way 
where they end up having an outsized impact. Uh, this is one of the more vertical moments on the record, as you would describe, and I think this is a really good indicator of where this guy's strengths lie as a composer. in between the chugs on that last blast riff were really cool as was the oh, sort yeah. of steep decelerate as was the steep deceleration thing he was doing before that mm-hmm. yeah uh, plus I, I like how he's uh, when the solo comes in he's not looping a previous riff there, here's a new riff you're going to listen to both of these mm-hmm. at the same time which is like a, a thing that Cryptopsy would do a lot is you get the solo but now there's a whole new riff under it specifically for the context of this solo um, but yeah, that's that section to me is so interesting because yeah, those are cool riffs, but the way that he lashes them together and you get this slow ramping buildup of extremity with this, yeah, especially rhythmically, you know, it's like the, the rhythms are increasing in density and increasing in speed with every new riff and mm-hmm. It gives it so much more of a narrative sort of impact, more like a traditional death metal song than a lot of brutal death bands do, I feel. Uh, Yeah, I think this album has a very narrative feel in some ways, which I'll get to with my sample. But um, also, is is this the brutal death equivalent to something like Mongrel's Cross in terms of the horror vacui aesthetic? That yeah, is, with Mongrel's Cross, <laughs> I talked about... With Mongrel's Cross, I talked about, you know, how they use this sort of flowing melody to sort of fill all available sonic space, cover mm-hmm. over the vacuum. This is kind of like that with Chug, and it has the same effect where, since I don't have as close an ear for this stuff as you do, if I just hear it, you know, blasting on my speakers the first time, there's stuff I'm going to miss. But, like, listening to that sequence through just there... 
I heard like four different things in different sections that caught my ear and stood out as cool, right? Like the closer you look, you look closer at the pattern and you see more instead of less. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, a lot of the riffing on this is super highly detailed. Like, for instance, that that final uh, blast riff with the slides that you were talking about. I never noticed the first time through that he's, you know, it's like three phrases with those slides. The first two, it's the same. And then on the third one, it's like a, like a, a seventh harmony, you know, of the slide reflecting mm-hmm. back on itself. Da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, which is like, mm-hmm. it's the sort of small thing that you think wouldn't make that much of a difference, but it really does. It, it creates a narrative arc within the riff itself, as well as the meta narrative arc of the song as a whole. Do you think he writes a thing like that as four of the same riff first and then goes back and edits it? Or do you think he's such a prodigy that he just writes them like that? I'm not sure. You know, I'd be really interested in this guy's songwriting process because sort of, uh, you know, when we were talking last year about uh, that band that I'm buddies with, Trash, talking about how the sort of metal Mm -hmm. generation difference means they perceive the same music, you know, music that we would both listen to in a very different way. So given how young this guy is, I would be very curious to see what his like guitar writing methodology is because this is a guy who I mean I've been watching him on YouTube since he was I guess around 13 years old and he's been playing this kind of music the whole time um so it seems like he's just really structured his whole musical process around this very specific niche yeah. of death metal and he I'm interested might, in what he, he might sees actually- in it he might actually hear the four rep phrases one thing like really yeah. like the really brilliant compo the really brilliant composers say things like they hear the whole thing before they pl- write it down right or like mm-hmm. um you get that sense with Quarthon too that like Quarthon kind of knew how the whole song was going to go before he started filling it in yeah i can see that i could see this music being sort of arranged in his head before he touches the guitar you know? Yeah, arranged in his head before he thinks, basically. Possibly, yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's a very natural you know, outgrowth um, for him. Yeah, because if I hear a riff, I'll automatically think of it in terms of the sort of, you know, black metal songwriting. Like, okay, you know, here's a riff. You could do a version of it where it's four of the same. You could do an A, B variation. You could do A, B, you know, A, B prime whatever right you know, yeah you yeah all sorts of ways of thinking about it but i wonder if this guy just has gestalt vision gestalt I don't <laughs> know if he sees it if he sees each riff all at once um, yeah i'd be very curious uh, so um my last thing you know this is also a really good part maybe this is better than the other than the part that you sampled at the beginning it's certainly up there um so this is in the title track, The Visceral Sovereign, which I assume refers to the strange, spiky, uh, open-bellied, vagina-dentata lobster tree man on the front cover. <laughs> um, it seems like a, a plausible pr- explanation. Yeah, it's a pretty cool cover. 
So this is the title track, and this is a good example of the thing you've noticed. Uh, you noticed with that Spanish band, and you found it in a few other places, of Brutal Death Band starting to incorporate Ulcerate in a potentially promising way. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so midway through this song, he just starts pulling out these much prettier riffs, but it, it, it's, it's an intense, it leads to greater intensity. Uh, okay. So let's, let's start here. There's a lot going on there. Right. There is a lot going on. Yeah, so as I heard it, it seems like he introduces this glistening melody that, like, I mean, honestly, it sounds, just in terms of the melodic shape, where it, like, has changes up a little bit, it really almost sounds like something off early Mastodon, like Leviathan. I could see that. But, uh, yeah, like Leviathan or Blood Mountain. But, like, it's, yeah, but it's quite possible that it's from Ulcerate. Uh but, like, there's this sort of dancing, arpeggiated riff, and it it kind of moves like movie soundtrack music. It's mm -hmm. that got that kind yeah. of, like, this is a magical, enchanted, otherworldly scene kind of floating feel that you get in film soundtracks. Um, yeah, I can see that. And it makes and it I... almost so that... It gives, it gives it almost like a Pan's Labyrinth kind of vibe. You know? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Which, you know, like, the visceral sovereign is that weird uh, eyeball hands man. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, but then the cool thing is that after that riff, like, instead of just following that to the end of the song and, like, turning it into, like, some sort of sophisticated Atmo Black song or something, he, uh... He drops back into extreme, one of the more high-intensity blast parts on the record, and the, changes the movement, so it's a lot more convulsive rather than continuous. But the riff remains... You pointed out he's really good at development, and so mm -hmm. I'd already seen your note, and that primed me to hear that the super brutal riff that follows it is still melodically related to it. Yeah, um, it is. Uh, it's, it's almost like that, that riff that's related to it is almost like if you remove the palm mute, sort of a... A, a, a gothic black metal riff or something. 
Yeah, it's in the same key. It's it's notably <coughs> in the same key as what came before it and is actually relatively consonant. Yeah, it would be like a Hecatean throned riff or something. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think it's... Um, yeah. I, I like the technique that he's using of... He's got those that phrase, those couple of related phrases... <coughs> excuse me. Those couple of related phrases. And at first it seems like he's he's dropping it in almost randomly against these other riffs but then you realize that it's sort of like you said like movie soundtrack music they're they're stings to correspond to the action on the screen you know um mm. there are these these moments of sudden redirection it's i mean it's also kind of a jazz thing or you know this this yeah. motif phrase that keeps recurring and you redirect the music around it yeah, and it's sort of the equivalent of knocking your head back and forth between two, you know, between two paddles or whatever. You know, he's just like, okay, we got the, um, we got the pretty riff, here's the brutal riff, here's the pretty riff again, here's the brutal riff. It's a really cool call and response kind of thing. Yeah, that that is kind of a jazz thing for sure. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I guess that's really kind of the watchword for this record which I, I never thought I would use a word like this to describe a, a band called Anal Stab Wound, but it, this is remarkably sophisticated music. Um, you know, it, I, I'm not one to say that Brutal Death is necessarily unsophisticated by default. God knows I wouldn't listen to it so much if it was just that dumb, but mm-hmm. I think that this is definitely a cut above. Well, I, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> okay fair enough but i i think this is clearly this is this is music with a distinct vision to it and uh i'm really excited to see i mean if this is what this guy is pulling off at such a young age and like literally his first release of his own music period i'm super curious this to is... see what he does with other musicians as well as future stuff on his own yeah, and especially once he gets, as you said, this does have the feel of a bit of a song dump. And so if he starts refining his sound around the real high points of intensity, like that moment you picked at the beginning, like this moment mm-hmm. I picked here, uh, if that's the direction he's going in, right, that could be a really exciting record that he'd make. And... uh you know what it is? It's like, this is very sophisticated, and he's got a clear vision. He knows what the vision is. We don't know yet. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch this gestate more. Um, because, like like you were saying, uh, yeah, it is kind of like a song dump thing. And, I mean, if there's anything critical I'll say about the record, it is that it does struggle under its own weight a little bit. It's just, I mean, 55 minutes is a, a ton of time for this style of music. And I do feel like the back half, when you get into the the longer songs that are around like the seven to eight mm-hmm. minute mark, it does lose some <laughs> of its immediacy for me. I think it's very cool that yeah. he's doing that, but I think that if we had maybe an EP of just that back half of those sprawling songs, it might come across a little easier for me. Um... But, you know, apart from that, I mean, I guess I'm just complaining about too much of a good thing because obviously there's no weak songs on this. So, I mean, honestly, I'm just really excited to see where he goes from here. And uh, I'm interested to see what it's like when he collaborates with other musicians, because uh, clearly this guy is 
you know, a rare talent. He's got this very fully formed, very mature and developed vision at such an early age. He's probably got a long career ahead of him of doing really interesting, exciting music. And I'm glad that we get to see the start of it. Yeah, for sure. I'm stoked. And, you know, it's also totally fair to have your first record just be a, uh, effort to flatten everyone with your proficiency and your achievements, right? <laughs> That's totally fair. So, so now that he's, you know, uh, you know, now that he's now that he's slammed his rifle down on the table, we'll be excited to see where where the adventure leads. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. All right, let's uh, well, let's take a quick break and uh, get back to our final record of the night. How's it going, Connor here from Oncology, and you're listening to Terminus. All right, and after that uh, dizzying display of brutal death uh proficiency from a young lad uh we are back with something very different this is sort of uh heavy metal punk from tau cross this record is the the third record messengers of deception uh came out on what i assume is rob miller's own imprint heretical music sometime this past fall in october or november and it uh trickled out to relatively little fanfare so uh i we're covering it now because uh i had no idea it was out um <laughs> the original lineup to tile cross was a kind of super group it was rob with the drummer from voivod and a couple dudes from the profane existence crust scene uh they suffered a rapid and cataclysmic lineup change uh if you want to read about the drama you can do it plenty of places uh, including some some guy wrote an article on it in Punk News, but uh, let's talk about the album. So, divested of the celebrity lineup, it's back to the underground for Rob, which is you know, in some ways fitting. And I'd say this seems, in a lot of ways, this record seems less metal, but it turns out to be a good thing. What were what were your impressions? Well, I'm kind of curious about this one because I've never heard Tau Cross before. Uh, you know, it's like mm -hmm. Amoebix is something that I basically like, but I rarely listen to in my own time. Um, but I know you've been following Rob Miller's work in particular pretty closely over the years. And I think it was interesting you said less metal because I see this as... Well, I mean, it's it's far more metal, at least heavy metal, than anything Amoebix did, to my ear at least. Yeah, that might be right. Yeah, I guess I also, gosh, I should have mentioned Amoebix. I just assumed everyone knew. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> Rob Miller was the guy. Rob Miller was one of the two uh, feuding brothers from Amoebix in a long tradition of feuding uh, English rock and roll brothers that includes uh, Nolan, Liam Gallagher from Oasis and the guys from the Jesus and Mary chain. Uh, <laughs> but um, they, uh, yeah, they had an Amoebix reunion back in like 2008, 2010, sort of uh, in, recorded one record called Sonic Mass with the guy from Soulfly, imploded, uh, kind of disappeared for a while. Rob started Tau Cross. Uh, and I am a massive, massive Amoebix fan. It's one of the most important bands to me. Uh, so, so, so I'm curious. And, so how does this, so, 
Yeah. Well, how does this stand up uh, in to the other Tau Cross records? Like, um, just because I, what I had always imagined Tau Cross as sounding like was mm-hmm. something that was kind of amoebics and kind of heavy metal and kind of goth rock all at the same time. Now, I've never heard it. That was just kind of my guess about it. Uh, how off am I? Yeah, that's kind of right. You know, to be honest, Rob hasn't really recorded... Even Sonic Mass only sounded like Amoebics and kind of... Like, uh... On a very deep structural level, there were similarities. But, um, he hasn't really recorded anything that sounded like Amoebics since Amoebics. Um, Tau Cross was kind of, uh... It was sort of like these driving anthemic songs. Some of them sounded kind of like polished motorcore. Some of them were more slow and kind of had a kind of amoebics, doomy amoebics pacing to them. But yeah, kind of big, beefy, heavy metal, modern production, but also still a lot of killing joke influence in there. So you're not off with the goth thing, but it's killing joke as processed through Voivod, Mm -hmm. right? Because he's with the Voivod drummer. So you get kind of these spiky kind of thrash metal melodies uh, that really didn't do that much for me at times. Um, and you get there's this, this polished production, but it's, uh, you know, yeah, there's there, there was a lot of thrashism in it, I think. And um, the idea of metal that was in it was not that compelling to me. What I preferred were the sort of big anthemic, uh, I, I liked a lot of the slower songs. I missed their second record, but on the first one, I liked the slower songs like Hangman's Hill or uh, um, I think the other one was called Hollow Hills, two hill songs. But um, <laughs> uh, but like this continues the Tau Cross sound in that it's much more polished than Amoebics was and it sounds kind of more like capital M modern metal. But there's less of the killing joke stuff. There's... Less of the explicitly Motorhead sounding stuff. Um, and a shift from that kind of um, proto-extreme metal, spiky, sort of creepy, uh, Phrygian guitar kind of thing to like uh, this very forthright, melodic, almost, you know, yeah... Uh, heavy metal or uh, I was processing some of the guitars on this record as it's got a new lineup I can't remember the pseudonyms of both people but one guy's name is the Kurgan which I assume is from Braveheart uh, but um <laughs> or not Braveheart sorry uh, the the um the other the other Highlander the other sword Scottish movie um, um and uh, I sort of assumed that was coming from like the neo crust kind of scene but there's a lot of just a lot of sort of Dorian scale epic melody on this. Yeah, I mean, I... Which I think I like better. This is another case where I wrote in the notes that, uh, you know, my hot take is this is like a very good power metal record from the earlier mid-2000s. Which is something I've brought up um, a few times on this show. And I'm kind of interested in exploring it just because I'm starting to think that maybe power metal as a main genre is sort of dead 
but lately we're seeing so many of these sort of power metalisms smuggled in through other genres of metal. Um, and this one, like, you know, like uh, uh, the Panikita record from last year that we both really liked has mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. flagrant, like yeah. open, heavier power metalisms on it. Uh, I would say, you know, even stuff like the Mongrels Cross, some of the melodic ideas there, the really florid, yeah. Yeah, almost yeah, yeah, major yeah. key stuff. Um, but I think here, more than any of those records, it's very clear. And a specific niche of power metal that was also crusting into rock music around the early and mid-2000s, it sort of led to bad stuff down the road for the genre, but it produced some excellent mm-hmm. albums. And the clarity with which I'm remembering bands like Camelot or Evergrey, who I'll sample later, really struck me as fascinating. Uh, because obviously this has more of a a punk pedigree to it. You've got the, the sort of rough horse vocals and you've got these sort of early iron maidenisms, this sort of uh, street punk infused NWO BHM feel. Uh, but overall, uh, yeah, this is, that makes sense. yeah, this is much more of a just straight up heavy metal record than I was expecting. And it's, a, it's a very good one also. Yeah. I think it's kind of a convergent, you know, with Panikita, obviously those guys listened to power metal, and I've talked with that guy quite a bit on Instagram, and he uh, he does not disavow. Uh, but um, uh, but the uh, with this, I think it's a little bit of convergent evolution. Now, Amoebics was always into hard rock and heavy metal for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. and stuff more than just Sabbath or whatever. I think they were they were into it like stuff like Accept. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're into Accept, they're into, like, Sisters of Mercy, which you can hear a little bit here, which is very hard rock, goth. Um, I don't know about Iron Maiden. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but um, also, I, I know that uh, Rob wasn't listening to much metal in the times between, or punk, after he left Amoebics, in the time between mm-hmm. that and the revival. Uh, I think, like... He's, I read something somewhere once about how he was, like, mostly listening to uh, shit like whatever was on radio, like Nirvana, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think there was this kind of, like, intake of just basic rock ideas, again, after leaving that world behind very decisively. And so that just interest in, in writing sort of catchy, direct, kind of beefy driving rock songs is what's dominant here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose we should sample one. Yeah, sure. Uh, start with the... Yeah, so I think as far as this record, let's just go for... Uh, I felt... I think we both feel that this record really gets going at around the track Black Cadillac. And before that, it's got a couple just up-tempo rockers. Um... But they're all they've all got pretty good parts, and I think the best one is uh Burn With Me, which is just I think this little clip at the beginning of the song is a good introduction to what Tau Cross sounds like and to the uh changing guitar style, both relative to Amoebics, because I assume a lot of people listening to the show are more familiar with Amoebics than with the last Tau Cross records. Um mm-hmm. and also relative to the last Tau Cross. Let's start this. Oh. 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 O
damn. Yeah. So that one ends with uh, an act, what we would actually think of now as a, uh, a crust punk part. Although that's pretty unique on the album. At the very end of that sample, you mean? Yeah, yeah, you get that you get that heavy D beat skank. Um you know, yeah, but you've like got the, like a, the, uh, the soaring guitar uh, line, which is much more just like straight NWOBHM. Yeah, for sure. No, I just mean it's rare to hear Amoebics never used or uh, they used some D beats on Monolith, uh, but like uh That wasn't their center. And um there was maybe more of it. I wouldn't be surprised if there was more of it on the second Tau Cross, but on the first, there was little that sounded classically crusty. So, I mean, trying to figure out who or from what background is playing on this record, that was a very sort of, that was definitely, that, that could have been like a um, a Doom riff or something right there. Um, yeah, I can see that. But, um, but, all, but all around it, but I'm just remarking on that because, you know, I'm, interested in the crust punk stuff but like around it like yeah i mean we got i feel like the vocals may actually be harsher than they have been on some previous town cross stuff but other than that you get this kind of just like half thrash riffing right but really quite good half half thrash riffing yeah no a lot of this is uh it's one of those things where people hear me say this and they'll think of it as like necessarily negative but it's not which is i mean a lot of this is similar in pacing and overall kind of sonic quality to you know a lot of like early 2000s roadrunner record stuff i mean there's there's a lot of dna I mean, the, in this from oh go ahead well i mean yeah that urge you know you can see how that comes from motorhead and amoebics but like if you make that really polished and crisp and a little more bluesy rocky and then you throw in that kind of like uh greased up slayer riff after it it starts to sound like pantera or machine head mm-hmm. yeah no it's definitely machine Is that head. Fair? i get a lot of that yeah. yeah like burn my eyes yeah. machine head or something or just um yeah yeah just a lot of like just polished kind of mainstream metal that was coming out in the early 2000s yeah, that yeah. was you know, sort of like in response to new metal. I mean, even stuff like, uh, you know, the most melodic parts of like Lamb of God or something. Some of the riffs would be kind of like that. It, it, but it's very interesting hearing it. Oh, dude, that does sound like Lamb of God. Yeah, it's very interesting hearing those ideas recreated in this very different context in a very different time period, though. I think that age and distance has made a lot of those ideas a lot better. Yeah, if we were surrounded by them at the time, we, you know, it might be like, oh, God, here's more of that. But, like, there's also something about just, like, when they're in skillful hands, right? Because the focal points of these songs, these really are songs. The focal point is not any one individual riff or set of riffs, right? Mm-hmm. The, the riffs, if, if you don't like an individual riff, it's over and less than 30 seconds and they're all designed to throw you into the next section uh and they're all remarkably like you know there's just a good touch in them like when it goes to that little thrash fill like with the you know the the spidery lead there could be a really bad version of that that just sounded static and dead but that one sounds like tight and ripping you know what i mean yeah no i i get it i think um 
Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is correct about how, you know, when we were surrounded by these kinds of ideas, when everybody was doing stuff like this, it was kind of unbearable. But then, you know, now that I've gotten older, I've looked back and I'm just like, you know, having that that sobering realization that, oh, Lamb of God just was a very good band, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. But (laughs) I still... I, I still the per, prefer the context. Right. Dude, you know they're going to take that quotation out of context. Fuck it, I don't care. Lamb of God's a good band, man. Those are, like, good, solid <laughs> heavy metal records. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, I think that a lot of what we're hearing, though, and what makes me think of that is that this is... It's got a ton of metal riffing. It's got a ton of sort of oblique heavy metal qualities to it. But structurally, this is a rock record, first and foremost. Yes. And there yes. is a certain kind of metalized rock and roll that walks this very delicate tightrope of uh, either on one hand uh, going too far into metal and kind of losing the catchiness and the immediacy of the rock and roll and uh, on the other hand not going far enough into the metalisms and just seeming kind of fake like the uh, the aesthetic is there just to make it seem more dangerous. And this album manages to ride that line sure. perfectly, which is a very rare thing to find. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good way of characterizing it. Um, yeah, it is a difficult hybrid style. Like, probably when we were saying rock songs before that, right? Well, probably half our listeners were like, okay, skip this one. But the ones who stuck around, right, probably would have been surprised because those are obviously very metal riffs that hit, right? But yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, it, it structurally it is entirely rock, um, and it's centered on the vocals and the lyrics. But yeah, so we think it really takes off around this song "Black Cadillac," which is structurally oh, yeah. similar to "Burn with Me." But what do you make of it? Uh, it's fucking sick. So we're just gonna play the first couple minutes of it, and I'll let you know after. Thank you. 
Oh yeah, this just this is so fucking good. It's so fucking good, dude. Like it's that... so it's so exciting <laughs> in a way that's different from metal. Oh yeah, it's got it it's got this whole like unique energy to it that I've really only heard on again certain kinds of weird early 2000s power metal records of like I mean at this point the idea of being like it's like dark but cool is almost forgotten just because it got mm-hmm. so played out. But holy shit, it's like, oh my god, I'm wearing a leather jacket and I'm a vampire, but I still have a lot of sex. I mean, that's that's great. And I can't believe that was <laughs> there was a period where that wasn't cool because I mean, it's still cool to me the idea of, you know, wearing a leather jacket and being a promiscuous vampire. I like that. Um, but musically, that opening riff is the definition of how you make a killer metallic rock riff, which is just, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. Like all you're doing is you're taking a a pretty, a pretty straightforward kind of chord structure. I mean, it's not one, four, five, but it's definitely a conventional thing we've heard before. And then you're just beefing it up with a palm muting pattern and some more density in the guitar production. Like, uh, it's 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 Do you perfect. Mean the, uh, be... ba, 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 da, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's awesome. That's yeah. It's just like he's yeah. He's like beefed the chords up with like octaves a little bit. To me, that uh, you know that and the guitar work on the previous track, it, it has this delicacy to it and this chord emphasis that reminds. It just reminds me of emo. But you've probably heard things like that in. A, You've probably heard things like that in early 2000s power metal, too, I'd imagine. It also reminds me of Catatonia, so there's a thing in between. Oh, yeah, definitely Catatonia. Definitely a lot of the stuff that, you know, the the peaceful bands that went rock. Uh, it's it's like them or Tiamat mm. or stuff like that. Mm, that um, makes sense. But I think, I, I think I'm starting to gestate an idea, uh, which is, I believe... I'm going to say Rob Miller. I mean, he's obviously not the only person involved in this music, but, you know, he's probably, the I assume, the mastermind behind this stuff. I feel like Rob's understanding of this music is not so much based on genre strictures so much as uh, a, a, a concept of what you call, like, English guitar music. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think that maybe mm-hmm. it's less, less what other metal bands is he listening to so much as what other UK bands is he focused on? Which is why I don't think that Rob necessarily perceives the distance between a UK crust punk and Iron Maiden in the same way that we would. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's always that was always very much a thing in Amoebics, and it makes sense that it's just continued here, for sure. Um, I can see that. And, you know, like... Uh, and, you know, he's been around for a while, right? So he's grown up through, you know, he grew up... If you try to place that chronology right, he would have been an, a preteen at the very beginning of punk, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have that span, um, if you have that span, the things that, and and especially if you just spend a lot of time just sort of away from the music world, the span of uh, 
the differences that seem very, very material to us start to matter a lot less than um, the basic chassis of song underneath it, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the, the way he yeah, perceives... I, I think, I think the way he perceives this kind of music is very different from the way internet metal people like us would. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 way more just like... I think it's way more just like he hears songs that revolve around vocal melodies and bass, basically chord changes, writes them on bass, and then, you know... I clearly hear the hand of the other guitarist in this because the style here is very different of the new guitarist because the style is very different mm-hmm. from what was on the earlier Tau Cross and yeah. honestly in some ways less conservative like this new guitarist has a real ear for kind of that kind of expressive thing and he just goes for it in a way that I think is cool also I wanted to talk about one thing on this on this specifically on this riff where like we get that beautiful hook and then it goes to the verse Black mm-hmm. shoes, black shirt, black tie, black hat, right? <laughs> and you think you're going to get a half thrash. You think you're going to get, like, a, a groove metal riff, kind of, right? And at the beginning, mm-hmm. maybe you're almost a little nervous. Like, oh, shit, is this going to be some dumb groove metal riff? And then the there's a chord change under it, right? It does that, like, major key chord change. And you realize, oh, no, we're at the beginning of a blues rock phrase, Mm-hmm. Black shoes, black shirt, black tie, black hat, a black Cadillac. I ain't never coming back. Like, um, it transforms it in a really cool way. Yeah. Well, also another thing I wanted to say about this uh, segment is, uh, what do you make of that final riff before I faded it out? Where you get into that? Ooh, that's some like straight Roadrunner Records. That spacious part with the sort of tremolo effect on the guitar. That's that's some shit that we haven't heard since 2005. I mean, and that's the Wait, sort of thing that a band me? like... Sorry, ba- dude. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. That is... Yeah, that's very early 2000s radio rock. Yeah, well, it's also very, yeah, like, uh, Camelot's The Black Halo or something like that would have a lot of stuff like that. It's very... It's so much cooler to hear that happening now than when everyone was doing that 15 years ago, you know? You know, and with, like, yeah, um, there was also something else going on there, which was, like, I think an air raid siren. I think it was, like, a a female vocal sample or something like that. There was a really loud hum behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe guitar drone or something. There's, there's like, keys put in very subtly throughout this album, which... uh, Reminds me of Amoebics, who sometimes had these, like, gothic key sections. Uh-huh. Uh, but, um... But, yeah, the, the, there, there was just a lot of sound going on there, which sort of held it together despite the relatively standard da dum da dum da dum da dum rhythm. Yeah. Uh, so, uh... But, yeah, so let's, but let's get into, like, the back half of the record, where it kind of opens up, and... I get, I get you, because you said it's like the amoebixisms start to come a little bit more in the back half, which I agree with, but it's definitely, it's more a matter of mood than of content, I would say. Yeah, there's no radical shift in style, right? Um, but uh, the basic ingredients of the sound remain the same, you know? We're not going to get, like, 
John. You know, or. None of that, but. None of that, but sort of. Amoebics always specialized in kind of. Very head, very heavy monolithic mid tempo stuff, and on the earlier Tau Cross, these songs were a little more spacious, had a little more breathing breathing room in a way that made them sound more rock or Sabbathy. Here, this guitarist is filling it in a little more, that in a way that I think gestures a little more towards some amoebixy stuff. And I'd say also I think the mood gets darker, right? There was an undertone yeah. of darkness in Black Cadillac, right? That cool guy darkness. Um, but violent, or Drowning the God starts to get uh, pretty intense. Um, uh, that and Violence of the Lord are relatively similar in their structure, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Violence of the Lord is quite heavy. But yeah, let's listen to uh, just... If you think of this as kind of this album's version of Amoebix, think of just like grooved mid-tempo chug riffs with a lot of syncopation behind them. And like real sort of musicianship giving it heaviness. So let's start at, uh, yeah, about a minute into this track. I'll make him just like us. Listen to the urgents. Receded as the gem of our Artificially A genesis To bring you to your knees Is it easier To live within The new reality Or is it easier Oh suffocating man We're drowning the god
it's uh, I, I get what you mean by it being like an amoebic song, but oh yeah, a lot of like a lot of power metal there again. It's really interesting hearing these these ideas get reinterpreted. Yeah, the things that make it amoebic. See, I mean, here re-listening to it, it's clearer, right? It's like sort of just like. Sure, big swooping motion, octave motion between sort of melodic chord work on the upper end of the guitar and then just the root chug. And as it goes on, he starts to introduce these kind of flourishes of kind of mournful Celtic sounding guitar that, I mean, Amoebic's guitar didn't really go like that, but as a similar kind of mood, right? Uh, feels, this pretty dark, feels, this track is pretty damn apocalyptic, right? They're drowning the god, etc. Um... But also that flourish of, yeah, that, I don't know how to explain that thing, uh, you know, the only thing I know that sounds like that is System of a Down. How would you explain that? Honestly, I would say it's more like a band that I brought up with a weird amount of frequency on the show, even though it's like not something I ever heavily listened to, would be something like Nevermore, who straddled a very interesting line between kind of groove metal, kind of power metal, uh, a little bit of thrash, a little bit of prog here and there. I mean, it's it's operating in a liminal musical space, which is where some of the most interesting stuff nowadays is coming out, is rediscovering these sort of forgotten liminal spaces as everything, we've talked about on the show a little bit, as everything's become more hyper-specialized and more niche. Yeah, People are starting to go back and realize that these spaces where... These spaces on old records where it's like, oh, well, they missed an opportunity to do something really brutal or really melodic or really this or that actually had this power because they were moving in more than one direction at the same time. And I think that's something you hear a lot on this album is the it's it's single minded and it's committed to a certain aesthetic, but they don't let that overly restrict them musically. You know, it's it's all this is in the tradition of great rock music. uh, Everything in terms of performance is at the service of the idea of the song rather than the idea of the band. You know what I mean? That's right. And in that sense, it's a significant difference from Amoebics. Not not because Amoebics didn't have different sounding kinds of songs. They actually had considerable range. But Amoebics was a band that... Amoebics was at the beginning of bands defining sound as we understand it within underground metal and hardcore. Mm-hmm. Right? Amoebics was at the beginning of, like, you know, I mean, before then you'd have Discharge, uh, Crass, I mean, I mean, Crass had a sound, you can say that, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, they, that, that is, yeah, they, they had a sound, whatever it was, uh, but, um, you know, they're starting to be this idea that, oh, we're not a, you know, we're not a rock band. We don't do different kinds of numbers. We have a focused aesthetic, right? And they were doing that in post-punk, too, with Joy Division and The Cure and all these bands. Uh, well, Joy Division especially, right? Or The Killing Joke. They have sounds and they write different iterations of that as songs. Amoebics definitely had that, where there was a very distinctive sound, a few elements that get used in different ways, and like a 
a pervasive, overwhelming atmosphere. And here, it is almost, it, yeah, it's very different from that. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's one of the strengths of this is the the relatively wide range of things happening, even if it's all revolving around a. I I would say the most consistent thing on this record is vocal style and guitar technique. There's a lot of different kinds of riffs being played, but there's a certain physicality to the way that they're played, certain rhythmic patterns that recur a lot, which help create a sort of connective tissue between the more disparate parts of the music. Um, so to, to close it out... Yeah, that's samples, well said. I think the physicality... The physicality oh, was really important to Amoebics. The physicality was really, was really important to Amoebics, and I think was missing a little bit on the older Tau Cross stuff, in part because it was recorded, I think, long distance. At least mm -hmm. the first of those records was. Um... Yeah, this feels much more like they're digging in, and I don't know if they recorded it. I, I don't think they recorded it live, but it has a lot more of that live energy. Uh, and the consistency of the vocals across it helps, because I think when you hear, you know, that track in some ways could be like a, a perfect circle song or something mm -hmm. at certain moments. But when you still hear these just barreling sort of uh, motorhead death crust vocals over it right there but he's basically still doing his amoebics vocals here it uh that really gives it this uh through line of intensity yeah i can see that um so to wrap up the samples though uh this is this is kind of the album uh, closing i mean it's the second to last track but it's clearly the big climax of the album uh this is a song called three tides mm -hmm or the trial of pirate John Bellamy and sea witch Annabelle Green. And uh, I'm going to play this, and then right after I'm going to play a sample from an early 2000s power metal band that I think is sort of a, a comparative touchstone for this, because this is a track in particular that struck me as being distinctly part of this kind of musical lineage, um, and it's probably one of the best songs on the record. So uh, let's try this one out and uh, see what we find. Come to me in my iron cage.
Yeah, that's the best song on the record. Oh yeah, it's outstanding. It's really good. Um, it's uh, it's very interesting because structurally, like everything else on the album, these are rock songs. I mean, this is sort of like an epic rock song, but you get this much more intense emotional edge by kind of filling in the cracks of it with this, you know, burlier sort of trad metal thing. And uh, it gives it like a real weight in excess of any individual part. And also what surprised me is how heavy metal this music feels, even though the vocal hooks are the clear center of the music. Because as we always say, I mean, metal is riff-based. And this is not, but it still feels distinctly heavy metal to me. And they're not they're not token riffs. Like the riffs under it are pretty good. And the thing yeah, that links yeah. it back to Amoebix also is just that there's there's a there's a lot of chug here, right? Yeah. Chug being used liberally. Uh swinging up and down from the octave to the chug. Uh and yeah, the the metal riffing is not it's not gonna grab your attention. They're not meant to be sort of uh punishing brutal amoebics riffs or like flourishing iron maiden riffs but they're successfully working in the background to still be really heavy also i just want to say that what that riff sounds a lot like is the riff to am i demon by danzig which is fucking sick (laughs) i can can see that i'm ready for your comparison Um, well um (coughs) so i mentioned a little bit earlier uh a band called evergrey uh, and Evergrey are a Swedish kind of uh, slightly proggy power metal band who I've been a big fan of for a lot of years. And I got a sample off of uh, a track called A Touch of Blessing, which is off their 2004 record, The Inner Circle, which is a phenomenal uh, you know, 2000s power metal record. Everyone should listen to that as well as the previous record, Recreation Day. Absolutely outstanding music. But what you'll hear on this sample is a structure enormously similar to the structure of this sample we just heard. And here with Evergrey, you'll hear some more uh, direct sort of uh, 2000s Roadrunner or Nuclear Blast-isms that aren't necessarily on the Tau Cross song, but are definitely present elsewhere on the album. Uh, So let's give this a try, and I'm interested in what you think of the comparison here. Climbing walls of an endless circle Walking paths you never heard of Struggling in an endless battle Searching far for a higher purpose Drowning in betrayal's river The freezing cold will make you shiver Join the world of greater learning Crown me king and be my servants
found that aesthetically reprehensible. Um, <laughs> however, uh, <laughs> however, I see the structural parallels you're talking about, particularly in that chug riff where you've got a pretty standard, like, radio metal kind of chug riff, but then there's this, like, really lush kind of pointillistic guitar thing happening over it that's really pretty that i think that part sounds great like that was my favorite part um, yeah no i think uh i just thought it was really interesting listening to this tau cross record and then hearing that sort of thing as an immediate reference point obviously that uh, Evergrey song is a product of its time and you're not going to hear the the totally like monged out thing on Tau Cross. But you'll hear stuff kind of like it sometimes. Some of these kind of like broken, staggered yeah. chord riffs. Um, so it's just, it, it's very interesting. It's like, okay, what if you do kind of like a, a street punk infused version of this thing and a little bit of goth rock and just kind of an expanded palette, but you're using this sort of rockish power metal of days past as... A, a, a launch pad. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was really fascinating. And uh, I think that I ended up liking it because it's like, oh man, go back to this really cool, weird power metal stuff that was going on. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's made me want to revisit a lot of this older shit I was listening to as a teenager. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's clearly still a lot of power metal I need to listen to. Uh, but that, yeah, I see the structural parallel you're talking about, because that, in many ways, that is written as a rock song, but still has conspicuously metal things about it, um, and it goes for a, uh, you know, a, a kind of grandiose atmosphere within those confines, right? Um, it's, a uh, yeah, I, I hear, I hear what you mean. And you can imagine if you recorded a version of that that had much rougher vocals doing sort of like a semi-tone-based semi roars, right? That would immediately make it sound different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the overall effect of... I That is very important to say is that yeah. Rob's vocal performance on this record is... Well, one, it's excellent, and two, it is one of the major differentiating features that gives this more kind of body and character than a retro heavy metal record would have because it's dynamic you know he's got he it's a yeah a rock sort of vocal performance it is not so concerned about a specific timbral range like it is in a lot of extreme metal so much as an emotive effect and a, a guiding narration for the songs. Yeah, that's right. I think he's done. I feel like his vocals have like developed in a meaningful way. Uh, not that I wouldn't love my God. Would I love the next Tau Cross album to just be like Rob drinking in a shed with these guys and recording an Amoebix record? Absolutely. I mean, yes. I mean, you know, if they recorded a version of this that just sounded like hammers on anvils and motorcycles being revved up, I would be stoked. Um, however, uh, I, I feel like he one thing that set him apart, right, was that he always had this sort of bellow, a bellow mm -hmm. from the chest. He took the Lemmy thing. He took the sort of, I got the sore voice, yeah. Right? And sort of turned it into a, right um 
and it was really ragged and just, you know, proto-extreme metal back in the day, or just was extreme metal. Um, but he sort of kept that as the basic principle, and I, I think he went more rockish on the earlier Tower Cross stuff to some degree, but, like, always that same basic idea... And here he's just moving from the roughest possible version of that, which is really a growl, where he's getting really sort of consistent, even fry on it in a way that's mm -hmm. like what a modern hardcore vocalist would do, which was not what he was doing in Amoebix, which was way more like, I'm destroying my vocal cords. Um, and then and then turns that up because there was always a t because it was always this chest bellow, there was always a tone to it. In Amoebix, that tone was just mostly the root note, right? Well, in fact, most notes in Amoebix were the root note. Um, mm. But, uh, but like, here he follows the melody. He moves from having pretty much a straight roar to following a melody in a way that we would now call, like, semi-clean vocals, right? In the mm -hmm. way that, like, Mastodon does or Nemthanga from Primordial. I butchered that, but, you know, the guy from Primordial, right? Alan Averill. Um, yeah. And so he's able to do this, he's able to, yeah, do write convincing vocal melodies without fundamentally changing the style so that you don't get any dramatic jump from here's my brutal vocal to like, here's my warbly clean vocal, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a more of a gradient going on in this music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, man, overall, this album's great. You know, yeah, I really I like this way more than I was anticipating. Me too, dude. I mean, you know, uh, I, you know, I've been deeply invested in this guy's work in the past, and you know, when it gets more, given I'm such an Amoebix fan, right? There's always something a little bit like hair raising about someone moving towards a more sort of palatable rock sound, right? And so I think when I first turned this on, I was like, oh, God, is this just like a straight-ahead kind of, like, radio rock record? And is he going to be able to pull it off? But no, it's not at all. It's very clearly the same person. The other thing, I, I haven't really had time to think about the lyrics, but there are some beautiful lyrics on here. The lyrics to uh, Black Cadillac, it's like, they could almost be ZZ Top lyrics. <laughs> but they just have this... They just have this, it's like a classic rock and roll song about a car, but instead it has this haunting ghostly feel about it, and it's either about driving your own hearse, or about being like a man in black. Yeah, no, I, like, I, I just love the <laughs> 3 a.m. the hour of the dead and the dying. Fuck yeah, dude. It's, it's, it, 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 the way he writes is interesting. It's like, uh... A lot of conventional ideas made weirdly erudite just through his choice of wording. Um, it's like the these elevated. <laughs> I hear what you mean. Yeah. Like like elevated generic rock songs, which gives him this very distinct feel. <laughs> yeah, because he's very familiar with he's very familiar with conventions for writing a rock hook, right? So that idea of the hour of the dead, and then you extend it in a way that's redundant. The hour of the dead and the dying. But there's meaning added there, and there's like that the, the sort of crestfallen fall off from that first tone mm -hmm. in the melody. It's I, that stuck out to me too. That's a brilliant hook. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, I think it's like yeah, uh, three tides. 
Three Tides is probably the greatest song on the record, but Black Cadillac is probably the one that I'm just going to listen to constantly in the future. <laughs> no, I know it. I know what you mean. And, and I think, you know, life being what it is, that's probably the song that we'll both end up starting a record on. Um, Definitely. I don't I don't own a car. I, I don't own a car. And now I want to call my buddy who has a fast car. And uh, <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, Tal Cross, uh, great record. Uh, this this might be like one of those sleeper records that might end up somewhere on my end of the year list. Like I'll, I'll go back to it and oh, be yeah. like, oh shit, this is actually one of the best things. Um, so, like wrapping this up, I mean, what's what's your favorite Amoebic song? We should probably close out like that, shouldn't we? Oh. Good question. <laughs> the power remains. The power remains. All right. Well, let's do that one. So uh, thanks a lot for listening, guys. And uh, as you uh, chant your, barbari- your barbaric yawps with uh, Amoebics, uh, we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Yeah!